Howdy, folks. We got a quick little intro for this very, very long episode about the November Men. Is this our longest episode? I don't know. Some of our episodes are really long, but yeah. Th well, this is the longest episode if I had left the eight hours of interviewing that I did with James Andronica in wow. the cut. But no, we cut it down to a, a tight two-hour interview that's at the end of this four hours and something episode. So uh, don't be too frightened by the the uh, the length of this podcast. If you are checking it out, you know, split it into parts or just know that there is a nice big uh, interview at the end. So just a couple little pieces we want to let you know. The film, The November Men, throughout this episode, we talk about how hard it is to find. Well, I decided to just upload the film to my Vimeo account and put a link to it on our episode page and in the show notes so you can click on that and watch it until you can't until trauma or somebody puts a damn blu-ray out of this goddamn movie god exactly damn it. exactly <laughs> exactly so like i said we have a really uh really special interview at the end with the film's writer and co-star james andronica Paul Williams was not available. As far as we can determine, he is living in exile in Brazil at the moment. So mm. Brian and I are talking about producing a documentary where we go in search <laughs> of Paul Williams in the Brazilian, uh, in, in Brazil. I don't know. I was going to say the Brazilian great. jungle, but that, you know, with... Uh, might just be in, you know, Rio de Janeiro or something. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> yes. My understanding is that with Bolsonaro, there's less and less jungle and <laughs> less and less... <laughs> trees in general so True. any last words before we dive into the world of the november men no just uh this is a you know an intense movie it's an intense episode uh so yeah just uh just have fun with it uh i'm excited me too okay enjoy the show Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tignataro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8-Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. I'm James Andronica, and you're listening to The World is Wrong Podcast. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about the November Men. <laughs> Welcome to The World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films and film artists the world is wrong about. I'm your host, Andras Jones. And I'm your host, Brian Connolly. That's it. We're your hosts, and we are here to talk about the trial of the November Men. <laughs> No, no, we're here no. to talk about the November Men, and not to be confused with the November Man, the Pierce Brosnan film from 2014. This is a totally different 
November men. <laughs> and not only is it confusing because it's not the November man, it's directed by Paul Williams. And there are a lot of Paul Williams. And I'm not talking about Paul Williams, the songwriter who wrote Rainbow Connection. And I'm not talking about Paul Williams, the creator and editor of Crawdaddy magazine the rock magazine from the 60s and 70s. Nor am I talking about Paul Williams, the trailblazing black architect from Los Angeles, or Paul L. Williams, the religious author, or Paul Williams, the Irish TV personality, or <laughs> Paul Andrew Williams, the director of Broadchurch and The Eichmann Show. No, I am talking about the other Paul Williams. <laughs> so whenever anyone asks, you say, no, no, no. The other Paul Williams. <laughs> and then, and say that nine times. <laughs> so this is a film that is very, uh, it's, it's the, I, is this the most obscure film we've ever done? It's, it's probably the least easiest to Google because when I, like, I couldn't even find it on IMDb because I, because I typed in November Men and it corrected it to November Man. And you're like, oh, well, it's directed by Paul Williams and then all the other Paul Williams. So it's like. I think it's I I think it's a conspiracy. I think the government are trying to hide this movie and making more Paul Williams in a factory, <laughs> in a Paul Williams factory, and then releasing other movies called November Man to diverge the trail to this film. As I'm sure the filmmakers would be very excited that happened. Yeah, so. I mean, <laughs> you're you're being sarcastic, but as someone who's had this film in my back pocket for you know 25. 30 years almost, I guess, whatever, how it, since it came out in 1993, it's, uh, I think, you think you might be right. I think that this, I think that this film and the work of Paul Williams has been buried because it's too dangerous, but you know what? <laughs> we don't care. We're going to, we're going to blow the lid off this. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm excited. I, I, well, I'll save, let's save the conversation after our, our we finish the intro i'm excited to talk about it okay well let's just play a clip and then i will tell you about this film despite the slippage in the president's popularity this winter george bush is starting to suggest that the economy is actually in better shape than people think most people would say that two percent growth is not recessionary and there's some areas that are still hurting but clearly this is uh a good sign, and there are a lot of other good signs. Of course, the upbeat economic news is moderate, and Republican strategists are wary of claiming outright to be at the end of the recession. What are you doing? Just thinking. About what? Getting a new television set? No, about what Lyndon Johnson said. He said you'd never have to worry about the left, because they'd never pick up a gun. He wasn't wrong. It's not true. The weathermen planted bombs all over the place. And who'd they kill? Nixon, Reagan, Bush? Our radicals were not killers. They were desperate hippies. When the hippies lost, they became yuppies. The legacy of the 60s is don't fuck with the real powers or you'll get shot. Arthur, that's history. Nobody's interested in history but school teachers. Yeah, but suppose Johnson was right just about his own time. Suppose everything that's happened since then finally woke somebody up, created an assassin from the left, someone who is willing to return fire. I'll be damned if I'm going to roll over for a lot of... There are an awful lot of angry people out there, out of the all on the edge. One little push, that could happen. 
It's starting to make me nervous, Arthur. Think about it. Change the course of history. Bend the political wheels of November. All with a piece of metal no bigger than my little finger. Fascinating, isn't it? Fascinating. Are you crazy? Do you know what you're talking about? Relax. It's just the movie. A what? A movie. Released in 1993 by Troma Films, November Men is the story of a director played by the film's director, Paul Williams, who is a former 60s radical, like the film's director, Paul Williams, who finds himself frustrated after the presidential election of George Bush. Bush was head of the CIA. The CIA is the U.S. agency deemed by many to be most likely to have played a role in the assassinations of many leftist leaders in the U.S. and abroad. And in light of this, as you just heard, the director laments that it's only ever politicians on the left who are assassinated. So he makes a movie about assassinating George Bush that may actually be a plot to assassinate George Bush. The film's other main star is its writer, James Andronica, who plays an ex-Marine sniper hired as a technical advisor on the film who becomes the star of the film and the potential assassin. In fact, most of the cast and crew of the film within a conspiracy within a film are either potential assassins or undercover Secret Service agents, and the only actors you're likely to recognize are tough guy Robert Davi in an uncredited role as himself, refusing to be in the film, but giving the director <laughs> the money to make it, and George Bush himself, who the director and crew appear to have actually filmed arriving at an airport. Like last week's The Cat's Meow in relation to Mank, The November Men is a cheaper and technically, quote, not as good film as this year's Oscar-nominated film about the trial of the Chicago 7, but I think it's the one the participants in that trial would find more agreeable than Sorkin's ahistorical retelling of their story. And that, my friends, is our introduction to this uh, this weird little film this exciting <laughs> little film called the november man so uh how is the world wrong about this movie well nobody's had a chance to be wrong about it i mean it's pretty damn buried as we talked about at the opening uh someone like yourself with the conspiratorial mind which is the audience <laughs> for this film might see this as a sign that this is a film that the powers that be don't want you to see <laughs> and as much as I'd like more people to see it, this buried aesthetic actually serves the film. On the other hand, in researching this film and its director, Paul Williams, I've realized that he is a director the world is wrong about, and we can discuss that as we go forward. Yeah, when you told me we were watching a movie released by Troma, I had a very different idea of what kind of movie we were going to watch. I think... Probably more closer to the trailers that were before this movie was more the kind of movie I thought that this was gonna be. Let's see, we had what were the trailers we had? Before okay, well let's we had... let's let's hold on. Let's hold on a second. So so I gotta I gotta take you back a little bit because imagine it's nineteen ninety three ninety four, and you're in Olympia and you go to video one, 
Remember video one? Oh yeah. Love video one. You go to video one and you see this, this film called the November men and you pick it up and you take it home. Cause it looks like it's a, uh, you know, a political film and you're a, a political guy like myself and you're interested in this. And then you throw it on and you've never seen a trauma film before. And then the credit, the, the, the previews roll and yes, the previews, let's go through them one by one. So the first is, and, and can you, since you've seen them, you can explain them to me because it's just, it's crazy. So the first is for a thing, a film called Radiation March that I still can't believe is an actual film. It's just a bunch of people in sort of blue skin suits with sunglasses and children dancing around their feet in a very creepy preview. Is this a real movie, Brian? That is not, I don't think that, that is not a real movie. I think that's just a weird short thing that Troma would randomly throw at the beginning of a bunch of their movies, as if it was an ad from the non-existent made-up place called Tromaville. Danger, don't breathe. If pollution grows, children won't. But I'm pretty sure that's not a that's not a movie. That's just like a weird little thing that they had some extra, you know, you know, heads and tails to film on, and <laughs> that's. But I love it, and it's on a lot of their tapes. Okay, okay, so that's Radiation March. Then we move on to Carmen Electra is the chosen one, <laughs> the Legend of the Raven. That's an incredibly long title. Carmen Electra is the chosen one, the legend of the Raven. Have you seen this film? I believe so. That's, it's like a good sort of like erotic thriller slash trying to be like supernatural. Like this was a time when superhero movies weren't really a thing so much. So like Carmen Electra like has like she can get magic powers and kind of, and like, it's just, it's a very con. It, if you look at the plot of IMDb, it's way longer than it should be for a movie that is not that smart. <laughs> but if you want to see Carmen Electra, like, half naked, scantily clad, just like kicking people, go crazy. Watch <laughs> the chosen one. <laughs> but if that's not, if that's not your cup of trauma, next up we have Beverly D'Angelo, a real. <laughs> live actress in a film <laughs> called Pterodactyl Woman from Beverly Hills. <laughs> Meet Pixie Chandler. I feel like I'm trapped. I haven't been to a Save the Planet meeting in months. Is that why the planet's in such terrible shape? Maybe you should buy some more crystals, listen to more whale music. But but the real thing you see is when uh, Daddy's penis enters Mommy's vagina. Oh, okay, no. But Pixie is about to change. Don't touch that egg, fella. I'm a paleontologist. This is sacred land. If you touch that egg, fella, you're going to be in deep. We have a permit to dig for fossils here. <laughs> I have just turned your wife into a pterodactyl. Pixie's been turning into a pterodactyl. Is she on the pill? Do we want pterodactyls living mm. in our neighborhood? Mm. Look over there at that dysfunctional woman! 
I don't want to eat you, darling. And it's just that when I become that, that, that thing, I just, my feelings are raw. I become totally instinctive and I, I might do anything. Sex can be elegant. Are you okay? How would you feel if you suddenly had the urge to nest? I think you could be pregnant. Is it a bird? Well, what is it? It's an egg. Beverly D'Angelo. Pterodactyl woman from Beverly Hills. A romantic comedy of prehistoric proportions. I love you. 99. I, it's, 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 at this point, I'm watching it and thinking, this has to be a parody. This can't be real. <laughs> That's an actual movie. No, yeah, I'm sure it is. Okay. <laughs> and you know what? There was a time in the 90s when Beverly D'Angelo was in love and dating and living with Al Pacino. And she was comfortable, and she can make whatever she wanted. Movies for herself, if you would. This was one of those movies. Uh, I believe it was around the same time as The Crazy Sitter, another pretty good <laughs> Beverly D'Angelo, uh, I'm guessing, straight-to-video motion picture, if you can call it that. Yeah. I think it's Trauma's... I think that movie, The Pterodactyl Lady, I think it's Trauma's attempt at kind of trying to do, like, family fair. I think that's them kind of being like, well, here's, like... Something for the kids, you know, like, because Charles Band around the 90s did, what, the prehysteria movies. So, like, he was trying to do stuff with kids to balance with his boob fest that he made. So, like, yeah, Choma's just being smart, like, making sure they're getting an audience from all ages, all, all sides of life. Okay. Uh, do, do you do you uh, recommend Pterodactyl Woman from Beverly Hills? No. No. <laughs> okay. no not... Well, well, let's try another one. So, uh, if... Carmen Electra is the chosen one, the legend of the Raven, and Beverly D'Angelo in Pterodactyl Woman from Beverly Hills are not what you're looking for. Perhaps you'd like Death by Temptation from James yes. Bond III. His destiny had been foretold. That movie is great. <laughs> its fate had been forewarned. <laughs> he did not know that something so sweet could be so evil. Of mankind hangs in the balance as Kadeem Hardison, TV's Dwayne Wayne. This honey I met the other night was bad, bad, super bad. And Bill Nunn from Do the Right Thing get busy in the first contemporary horror thriller of its kind. James Bond III's Death by Temptation. She's every man's dream and your worst nightmare. She leaves with men. Never see them again. <laughs> Look, no, 
she drinks that holy water, she's gonna start slobbering and farting and gagging. I'm on a mission and nobody can't train my style. So if you can't get down, stay up the trip for a while. I don't mean to be cruel and no Death by Temptation, a new movie from Troma. With new music by Ashford and Simpson, Melba Moore, Najee, and Freddie Jackson. Have you not seen Death by Temptation? No. No, I have... it's, it's Samuel Jackson's in it. I mean, like really? that is a great Oh yeah. That is a great that is a great movie. That movie is so good. Okay. I am a huge fan of that. Like that that is an actual legit good movie. Like that movie has no business being thrown in with these other trailers but i think you'd like it it's it's subversive it's satirical it's very it's smarter than it you know actually with what you think it'll be with that title no highly highly recommend death by temptation (laughs) are you a fan of james bond the third's uh films (laughs) Or is this the only, That's the one only movie seen? he's ever directed? So yes, <laughs> <Okay>. yes, <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> James Bond the third would be Ro- not really Roger Moore. I guess that'd be George Lazenby because the first one there was the guy who was on TV, and then there was Sean yeah. Connery. So yeah. James Bond the third would be James George Lazenby, right? Who I also love. So I love all James Bond the thirds. So by the transitive property of bonds does that mean that this film was directed by george lazensby <laughs> sure <laughs> okay uh then we get a special message from troma hey troma guys and gals how often has this happened to you you finish watching one of our fine feature films like maybe the toxic avenger or is it the class of newcomb high and you're wondering how did they do that who is Lloyd Kaufman and how did he get that way? And where do they get that money? Where do they find those actors? How do I get men and women to let me film their naked bodies? And why does everything happen in Tromaville, New Jersey? What you really want to know is, how do I make my own independent film? Well, we've got the answer. We can take you from, how did they do that, to, I can do that. All this. Plus all the behind-the-scenes stories from Troma's 25-year history. And the secrets of the pyramids. Are revealed in Lloyd Kaufman's upcoming book. Kaufman's story will be published this summer by Boulevard Books, a wholly owned and licensed imprint of the Penguin Putnam Group. Which is itself the sort of titanic media empire that we at Troma completely abhor. Watch for it. I like a book. You know, I don't think Troma was ever on the correct side of things. I think that was that way they tried to be not. Except for with November Men. That's the only, t- maybe the only time. <laughs> We're going to get to it. But first, we get one more preview. (laughs) Sergeant Uh, Kabuki Man, NYPD. His name is Sergeant Harry Griswold. He's an undercover cop who takes his job seriously. I need to commandeer this vehicle. And he's always careful. Crime is at an all-time high. And to make matters worse, an ancient prophecy has unleashed an unbelievable evil spirit. And Griswold is caught in the middle of the crossfire. Strange things begin happening all around him. And even stranger things begin happening to him. A regrettable twist of fate has chosen you as a recipient of amazing supermortal powers. He is crazy. He is confused. And he is turning Japanese. 
can't believe this. I'm eating a smelly dead fish and I'm loving it. But raw fish is chopped liver compared to the wild adventure that is about to take over Griswold's life. He becomes Sergeant Kabuki Man, NYPD. Able to leap tall muggers with a running start. <laughs> Only a beautiful, tender woman, Lotus, can carefully teach Harry the subtle nuances of the Kabuki way. She trains him in the proper use of Kabuki Man's amazing arsenal of high-tech super weapons, heat-seeking chopsticks, computerized 16-byte sushi, futuristic flying footwear, bulletproof Gale Force fans, and pyro projecto parasols. He is a one-man army of awesome oriental artifacts. He is Sergeant Kabuki Man, NYPD. Who are you? I'm Kabuki Man. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that was their follow-up to trying to make another, you know, recognizable character post the Toxic Avenger. Kabuki Man didn't catch on in the same way. That's the only Kabuki Man movie. Though he does show up, I believe, in Citizen Toxie. So, like, they do bring the character back as sort of like a friend of the Toxic Avenger. But it didn't quite have the same legs as as the Toxic Avenger movies. Sergeant, it's a, Sergeant Kabuki Man's plot, I believe, is a cop, a white man, turns into a Japanese Kabuki Man. <laughs> and that's his special power. And he throws chopsticks at people and sushi and, again, uh, <laughs> trauma being on maybe not the right side of history in terms of what we're... But, you know, again, they their aim is to be shocking. That was trauma's number one thing, is to be as gross and shocking and inappropriate. Uh, they've always been that way. That's been their thing. That's their type of comedy. So, after this parade of... <laughs> What the fuckness? <laughs> we get a the the screen comes up. It's an American flag, sort of muddled in the background, and we hear the snare drum rattles like we're at a a military funeral. And all of a sudden, it feels like we're watching an Oliver Stone film, and we're like, yeah. And you're like, what the fuck? What? I, there's nothing that nothing that has gone on in this video up till this point has prepared me for something that's that looks like it's pretty serious. And we get the lines over it. The elected public officials who appear in this movie were not aware of the filming and its eventual use here. All cinematography took place in strict compliance with the laws and the Constitution of the United States of America as they have stood since the election year of 1992. I guess they're <laughs> suggesting that the Constitution, by the time we're watching this, the Constitution will have changed to make a film like this illegal. <laughs> and then we get uh, we get a, a video of Tom Hayden that Paul Williams, the director of the film, playing a director in the film, is watching. And Tom Hayden is talking. And this is where I want to take a little, do a little cut in talking about this film to say that 
one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this film. I've been wanting to do this film since we started this podcast. But the thing that inspired me to do this was your uh, your rant about Mank last week <laughs> made me think that this would be a perfect opportunity to sort of do the same thing that we did with Cat's Meow and Mank, that this is an opportunity for me to be very positive about the November men, but also to register some of my uh, criticisms of the the brilliant film from the brilliant filmmaker Aaron Sorkin. Brilliant like a Laney Raifenstahl film. Um, so... Do you mind if we sidebar for a second here before we get into sure. to talking fully about Go the November? Crazy. Now, did you see the trial of the Chicago Seven? I did. You did? Yeah. And as you know, in an early episode, I spoke favorably about this film, particularly because of the portrayal of, uh, or Sasha Baron Cohen's portrayal of Abby Hoffman. Did you Did you notice the scene that I told you about where he treats... A sandwich like a basketball does a little. He does a little shuffle. He does a little uh, move. I don't, I don't know basketball, so I don't know what that move is. But yeah, he does a little <laughs> little basketball move with a sandwich. Yeah, and the actual Abby Hoffman was a basketball player. Now, if only Aaron Sorkin had applied the kind of rigor, historical like rigorous historical accuracy that Sasha Baron Cohen brought to his portrayal of Abby Hoffman, it might be a great film as opposed to what I'm about to uh, say about it. So uh, before I tell you, what did you think about the, uh, what did you think about? I thought it was really good. I really liked it. It it is a really good uh, (laughs) film. If you don't know the story that it's about. I I don't know. I don't know any of these people. I don't know the stories about, I've never heard of any of these. I've heard of Abby Hoffman. That's it. But I didn't really know much about him. So I watched this movie and I thought that was a pretty entertaining uh, courtroom thing, courtroom drama. It wasn't great. It was good. Uh, it 130 minutes should seem long, but it flew by. The actors were all very good. I thought Franklin Jella was great. I thought that, uh, what's his name, uh, Mark Rylance was really, really good. Um, and he, yeah, I don't know. And it has that good kind of Sorkin... Uh, idealistic uh, liberalism that he always has and all these things that I enjoy. And, Hold on, let uh, me get... I have to get a bucket uh, to throw up in for a second. Oh, come on. <laughs> and I haven't seen... Like, I've never seen The West Wing, but I saw uh, the Studio 60 and the Sunset Strip, and that I really liked that. And, uh, yeah, I just think he's a really good at writing dialogue, and the actors are all great. And I thought, it's not the best movie of the year, but it was a very entertaining Two hours and ten minutes. I love a John Carroll Lynch. Anything that guy does, and uh, yeah, you know, it was just an interesting. It was an interesting movie. Well, let, let me let me jump in here for just so because I don't want you to feel bad about not knowing any of the history of this film, because neither did Aaron Sorkin, as he has said publicly many times, with no shame whatsoever, when. Steven Spielberg offered him the gig to write this film, which was originally supposed to be directed by Spielberg. Aaron Sorkin accepted the gig, and then he called his dad and said, who are the Chicago Seven? Which, let me back up. You shouldn't feel bad for not knowing who they are. 
But if you are Aaron Sorkin, the writer of The West Wing, and someone who, I don't know, fashions himself as someone who it has a you know a political awareness, a historical awareness. He writes characters who talk with authority about American history. Well, then maybe you should feel a little bit astonished that this guy does not know one of the most important political trials in American history. Why is this a blind spot for Mr. Aaron Sorkin? And I, I guess I feel like we, we're here to talk about November men, but because the November men is about the feelings of uh, loss and frustration from people who supported the movement that the folks who were part of the trial of the Chicago seven, the, the, uh, the defendants in the trial of the Chicago seven, the people who supported that movement and were part of that movement, uh, they did not, they do not share Aaron Sorkin's patriotic attitude towards America. And so would reasonably be offended, I think, by his film. Let me tell you a little bit. So I just recently listened to an interview where David Fincher interviews Aaron Sorkin. So we have the director of your favorite film, Mank, and <laughs> the director uh, interviewing the director of my favorite film of the year, Aaron Sorkin. And in it, <laughs> Aaron Sorkin says that at the end of the film, he wants the viewer to feel the way we did when Joe Biden was sworn in as president. David Fincher, by the way, does not cough, laugh, do a spit take, or offer a follow-up question to this. But if I were there, I would say mission accomplished, Aaron. You know, we could have had a democratic socialist who opposed the war in Vietnam, and instead we got a Republican masquerading as a Democrat who cheered on the Iraq war, in fact, every war, and wrote the Patriot Act. It's disappointing, and if you actually know what's going on, it's deeply insulting and vulgar. <laughs> now, as you say, it's a really good movie. It is a very, very good movie. Uh, unlike Mank, it's actually compelling and entertaining. It's also ahistorical and an affront to its subjects, which is particularly galling since his subjects were not just real people, but revolutionaries representing millions of people who, like them, opposed imperial wars of conquest waged by the United States. But in Sorkin's world, they're all ultra-serious chess pieces for his own patriotic both-sidesism. Between literally recycling dialogue from the West Wing to admitting that when he got the gig, he didn't know who the Chicago 7 were to shoehorning his patriotic neoliberal worldview into a story about people who were totally antagonistic to it. Aaron Sorkin continues the persecution and misrepresentation of these historical figures that the people who put them on trial were seeking to achieve. The cast, as you said, they're great. Sasha Baron Cohen does such a good job as Abby Hoffman, it makes you wish he could actually play Hoffman instead of Sorkin's pretentious version of the famed Yippie. Like all the characters in this film, he isn't as funny or interesting as the person he is portraying. And likewise, Sorkin makes Joseph Gordon-Levitt's Richard Schultz into a sympathetic patriot just doing a job of which he disapproves instead of the noxious conservative bulldog he was during the trial and after. 
We've also got a totally made-up sympathetic female undercover agent who infiltrates the protests by cozying up to Jerry Rubin. If Jerry Rubin were a John Belushi character from National Lampoon's Lemmings, and it's all very funny, but none of it is true. And the true stories, the actual story of the trial of the Chicago 7, is just so much more interesting and so much funnier. Now, imagine, if you will, the story of Malcolm X, directed by Clint Eastwood as the thrilling tale of a black man seeking vengeance against the evil nation of Islam with the help of his good friend, the sympathetic J. Edgar Hoover, played by, oh, let's say Michael Keaton, as a rascally old cuss who tries to teach the hot-headed Malcolm to use his words instead of his gun. But it's no use, and Malcolm goes down in a hail of gunfire, but not before singing God Bless America and kissing J. Edgar Hoover on the mouth. That's the trial of the Chicago 7. It's brilliantly executed, and it's also a totally noxious piece of propaganda from a director whose work I will always watch. This should have been a miniseries, and it should have been directed by Paul Williams. <laughs> You're right, it should have been a miniseries. Like, even though... You clearly know way more about this than me. Like, I am a total moron when it comes to any history of anything. Like, I think uh, my school stopped teaching us U.S. history at around <laughs> 1805. So I don't know anything that, like, I had to ask my wife about, like, what was World War One about? I don't understand because I'm an idiot. Um, but you clearly are very passionate about this and know a lot more about this than me. So I'm going to kind of, like let you go in like i believe that you know more about the chicago seven i mean just based on your love of abby hoffman and your family's history with him you know that you've mentioned on past episodes that uh i believe that aaron sorkin maybe got it wrong on a lot and that's kind of the sad thing about i mean i do i do like his movie unlike you but i, I think i think that's kind of the hard thing about making movies about anything that's based on reality is that by default it's going to always get it wrong like i don't think there's any even documentaries that don't quite get it right because you can't like this was a movie about a trial that lasted what like months and months like I think by the end of the movie it was like day 200 and blah 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 so like you're never he's not going to do justice with any it's kind of going to be a failed attempt unless it is like a 30 hour you know like documentary <laughs> or something that really, or you're right it should have been about someone who knew about them like I, you know, I guess it's nice that Sorkin was hoping to learn about them while making a movie, but maybe that's not the right thing. It's like, uh, uh, <laughs> it reminds me of Michael Bay being excited about the Ninja Turtles movie he was producing and saying, they, they're from outer space. I love them. And it's like, no, they're not from outer space. You don't know anything about the Ninja Turtles, Michael Bay. Leave the Ninja Turtles alone. <laughs> so maybe, according to you, Sorkin should have left the Chicago 7 to someone more. Who... Who would be the more radical filmmaker? I guess you're right. Paul Williams. The other Paul Williams. You know, this is a film I watched like three <laughs> or four times, and I will probably watch it a few more times because I, I've i watched The West Wing through twice, the whole series, because it does make me feel good. But I also <laughs> hate that. I got to admit, I'm guilty of being won over by his his version of patriotism. Like It is sort of that, like, the optimist in me. Like, always hope that it's like, I hope that this is how it really is or could be. It's like that. It's just like this weird dream, you know, <laughs> when everybody. The only thing is. And I guess with the West Wing, it doesn't bother me so much. 
because it's made up. Well, not only because it's made up, but it's also he's representing the ethos of the way the Democratic Party thinks of itself in a way that at least <laughs> like that's it may not be true, but it's true in representing the aspirations of that of that audience. Whereas the the people who relate to the defendants in the trial of the Chicago Seven do not have the same aspirations. We don't want Joe Biden to be president. We wanted Bernie Sanders to be president, and not because of his personality, but because he also opposed the Vietnam War, which Joe Biden didn't. And so I guess that's where he goes off the rails for me, in that his style is great. Aaron Sorkin's style is his intelligence as a writer and as a filmmaker are wonderful. I like I'm I'm completely drawn into it. And I happen to know the real story. Enough of the real story to be like, whoa, yeah. this is not okay. Like I said, in that description of the Malcolm X film where <laughs> he's where his best friend is J. Edgar Hoover. That would be an interesting movie. But <laughs> considering that J. Edgar Hoover was responsible for Malcolm X's death, it's not a good, you know, it's not good. <laughs> I mean, this is also the same writer who made Mark Zuckerberg sympathetic. So, yeah, <laughs> sort of, he plays fast and loose with his with his history. OK, well, <laughs> uh, and I think <laughs> fair point, fair point. That brings us back to we, we started with Fincher and Sorkin. We end with Fincher and Sorkin. And we go on to uh, a, a director who is not nearly as successful as either of them, but who I think made a film in November Men that is much truer to the ethos of the trial of the the defendants in the trial of the Chicago Seven than that film. So let's talk about let's talk about the November Men, shall we? Let's <laughs> let's do it. So we're, we left off. Yeah, we left off with this. We have these trauma previews, and then we have this <laughs> Oliver Stone opening. Then we have Tom Hayden, played by Eddie Redmayne in the movie The Trial of the Chicago Seven. We get the real <laughs> version of him talking about the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. I don't know if he mentions Malcolm X, but he should. And this inspires the Paul Williams character the director character he plays in the film to decide to make this movie about assassinating George Bush. But from the very outset, his girlfriend played by uh, Leslie Bevis is not sure if he's really thinking of assassinating <laughs> George Bush or he's uh, really, or he's just talking about a movie. He sounds like he really yeah. wants to assassinate George Bush. Oh, and by the way, he does this scene holding a rifle. <laughs> so. It's it's in the whole movie plays with that the whole time where you're just like, is this what they're really doing? Is this what the character, like, what is his intentions? And then, like you said in your intro, that's also what you get from watching the movie. You're like, what is the intentions of the people making this movie because of these scenes? Like, and, and like, this is sort of the selling point you gave me before we watched it was like, this movie's crazy. This movie's about assassinating the president. And there's scenes of these actors with the actual president in the shot 
while they're making the movie. Like, this isn't just medium cool with them, like, in a crowd. Like, they're literally... Like, imagine if medium cool was, like, people getting close to Lyndon Johnson or whatever, you know, and he was in the shot, you know, of the movie. <laughs> and uh, and that was your selling point. And that definitely is, I think, a selling point for anyone who's, who's never heard of this movie. One of, the, one of them is that it is kind of... It has this sort of actual dangerous feeling to it. But within yeah. the confinements of a movie that trauma would put out <laughs> in a way like it is this low budget kind of grimy, you know, not glossy movie at all. Like it definitely has its limitations of a low budget movie. You know, it's, you can see, you can see, you know, the, the, the problems that it has with its, that it's, that it's, that it's a small movie, but within it is this very fascinating concept that no, not a lot of, has any filmmaker ever done this before? I don't or since <laughs> like to be this like I think they put that thing at the beginning of the movie because they were all afraid that they would all be arrested by the CIA or FBI and thrown in jail for making this movie because um, <laughs> it is risky what they did it's cra it's cra it's kind of crazy she scratched that it's really crazy <laughs> yeah yeah and. It's funny, it's totally different, but Get Shorty plays similar games where you think that things are happening and then you pull back and it's a movie, but yeah. it's different because this this is on a nerve. <laughs> you know, and this we're talking about this now, George Bush is has died of natural causes, we imagine at this point. I mean, we know he's dead, we imagine there are natural causes. Maybe Paul Williams finally got to him. <laughs> but <laughs> He's like, a, a mission accomplished. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I, it's funny you mentioned Get Shorty the movie. I thought of a watching this, and I talked about it on the Murphy Monday episode that we did with our guest Nigel. Uh, it reminded me of Bowfinger. This is like if Bowfinger was like a serious political thriller type thing, that's what the November Men reminded me of. <laughs> of the intention of this filmmaker of blending the reality and, and the fiction and what is real and what's not for these characters. That's kind of what November Men reminded me of, and it's it's it does it it does so much with so little. I mean, this is one of the reasons that I really appreciate Paul Williams. He has no, you can tell, he's got no budget for this. Yeah, but he he achieves some really nice things with very little. It's kind of a, a in some ways, it's kind of a, a I don't know a lesson or a study in making the most with the least, mm -hmm. like. There's a scene where the character played by James Andronica, who wrote the film and plays the the uh, the assassin in it, where he's freaking out, and we're supposed to see that he's freaking out, and like he has some sort of post traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, and basically his his wife has this set of nice forks. And he bends one of the forks. And she totally <laughs> freaks out. very upset. Last week, a car accident. No, she's dead too. I'm his brother. And, and I can't talk anymore, all right? Who is you talking to? You scared the shit out of me. What the fuck is wrong with you? Shut up, you wake the baby. I heard you telling somebody we was dead. Who was you talking to? Uh, they were trying to sell something. Bullshit! It was a collection agency, okay? No. It was. You said it wasn't, didn't I? 
Don't use those forks. I saved them for company. Give it to me, I said. You want the fork? You want the fork? Here's your fucking fork! All right? You bastard. You break my fork. I love you for it. They were for my wedding present. I'll get you another fork. Give me the fork. Give me. I can. I can fix it. You can't fix it. It's broke. I can fix it. Here. Here. Look. See. <laughs> that is. That is my favorite. That is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. That and that actress is really good. This I, oh, I, she's that, great. She, she's like uh, I don't know who she is. Just an Asian Asian American actress. And she's like the way she's so upset and like poor her like the whole movie she's just like my husband's losing his mind I really don't want him to kill her baby or maybe he's just practicing for this movie so it's like this dilemma she's got to deal with of like is this because he's getting into the role is he getting all method or is he actually having some major PTSD losing his mind um, <laughs> yeah. That fork scene. <laughs> it's very good. Uh, and I like the idea of being so upset you just bend a fork. Like, I feel that's <laughs> a good kind of anger. If that's how you have to take your anger out, if you bend a fork, that's better than, like, throwing a vase or punching a hole in the wall. Like, just everyone has a lot of forks. She's not happy about it, but, you know, there are worse ways he could have vented. And that actress's uh, name is Coralisa Gines. She's a great. A lot of people in this did not work in many other films. <laughs> But they're all pretty good. And like the fact that the director is the director in this movie and that the screenwriter play, is playing this kind of this over the top character, like they're both really good. Like they don't, you would have never guessed that they're just these people who made this movie. Like they seem like real actors. Like they do a good job. Well, they've actually worked together a bunch before Paul Williams and James Andronica. As um, actors? Yeah, there was a film called Nunzio from 1978 that James Andronica wrote and Paul Williams directed, and they're both in it. The main star is David Proval. Mm-hmm, yeah. He plays a sort of a... It's like an Italian-American family drama in New York City, and David Proval plays a, a mentally challenged delivery man who lives with his mom and his brother is this tough Italian who's who lives on the street <laughs> who's on the street and is protecting his brother and that he's played by James Andronica in that and he's really he's very he's a lot uh he's a little bit uh paunchier by <laughs> 1993 and in 78 he's just he's like a tough little tough little Italian guy don't don't fuck with, don't fuck with him. You know, eventually we all become paunchy Pisanos. It's just like, it's just, you know, the Pisanos eat a lot of uh, spaghetti and sobering <laughs> sa sandwiches. And we, you know, I have a gut now. I used to be, I used to look like a handsome, skinny Ralph Macchio. Now I look more like, you know, James Andronica. Well, we'll get back to the November men, but in Nunzio, not only do we have David Proval, but we have Joe Spinell. Oh, wow. We have Morgana King, who played Mama Corleone in uh, The Godfather. I, I need to see this movie. 
Yeah, it's a it's it's only I can only find it streaming on YouTube. So uh, so tell me tell me more about Paul Williams because you did the homework. Like I had never heard of him. I would never heard of this movie, and I assumed this was his only movie because it was like this weird straight to video trauma release. And then when I looked up his filmography, I'm like, oh shit! Like he made like legit movies starring like John Voight and Robert Duvall, and like, but I've never heard of him. I've never heard of these movies. Had you had seen any of these other movies before that he had made, like in the 60s and 70s? I had not. I had known, a, I, 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 I've known this film. Like I said, I've, I, this has been one of my great finds that, that I've, I'm always trying to have conversations with people about and nobody's ever heard of it before. And uh, for this, I, just, I went back and I, I dug in deep. I found his first film is a film called Out of It from 1969 that kind of feels like it feels like the graduate but it looks like who's afraid of virginia wolf it's <laughs> black and white it's shot by john g avildsen nice and it stars barry gordon who was the kid in a thousand clowns and he was yeah. in archie bunker's place and you he, people will recognize him when they see him and he plays sort of a nerdy, kind of like, he's not exactly Max from Rushmore, but he's kind of a Max from Rushmore kind of character. He's nerdy and smarter than everyone, uh, coded as Jewish in a world where no one else is. <laughs> he has a crush on a girl who is going out with John Voight, who plays a football star. And... Uh, it might be other th other than November Man. I think it's my favorite of the Paul Williams films I've seen, and it's you can find it on Sling from uh, on the Epics channel on Sling. That's how I found it, hmm. and so that's a really I I just feel like that's the kind of film you if you saw in TCM you you stay and watch through it. <laughs> then his next film is a film called The Revolutionary, and. He works with John Voight again in that, and that's from 1970, and it's about college radicals, and it has a great cast. Seymour Cassell is in it, and he's great, and wow. Robert Duvall is in it playing a worker, and he's great. Basically, John Voight plays a student, a college radical who wants to be more real, and he go he. He, he kind of drops out of college, but then he actually gets kicked out because he's going and wants to actually work with the workers and organize them. And then he ends up in the army. And there's a scene that I'm pretty sure Vincent Gallo, I don't know if he stole it. Maybe great minds think alike, Paul Williams and Vincent Gallo, even though you probably would hate each other. There's a scene where John Voight gets out of jail and has to take a piss and he is looking for a place and he keeps getting kicked out of places just like at the beginning of <laughs> Buffalo 66. Buffalo 66. <laughs> Although I have to say Vincent Gallo did it better. It's much, it's he really sells he sells the bit the he, he does uh, in the revolutionary Paul Williams kind of doesn't really sell the bit. But still an interesting film. Also there's it's shot uh the workers work in a nuclear plant so there are all these scenes with them walking in front of these big nuclear stacks that kind of reminds me of the simpsons there's a lot of interesting <laughs> stuff in that film i i recommend people check it out and see where it fits for you it kind of reminds me i recently watched 
a film from 1971 about Joe Hill, the um, the union organizing folk singer who was arrested and and uh, executed and became sort of a rallying point and a martyr for the union movement mm-hmm. at the turn of the century. And they have they feel similar. They're they're epic and they're small. They're really exciting, but also kind of tedious and boring. Um, it, but not, I guess, kind of like if you were if you were in a political science class. Like it's really <laughs> exciting, but there's also times and you're like, oh boy, here we go. I was never uh, in a political science <laughs> class, as you can tell. I wasn't but even it's... good at science class. I just stay, you know, I stayed away from all of it. That's why uh, you do political science because you're not good at real science. Um, <laughs> So there's a film of his that I really want to see and I just can't find anywhere called Dealing or the Berkeley to Boston 40 Brick Lost Bag Blues. And the fact that this film isn't out or available from anyone, it it does seem kind of conspiratorial. I mean, it's got Barbara Hershey, John Lithgow, Charles Durning, Paul Sorvino, it has the it's most a, exciting title. Yeah. You know, it has the most of, of all of these films. And it's yeah. basically the end of this trilogy of Paul Williams' young radical films. And sort of after that, he didn't get to make such big films anymore. And I really want to find this one. So if anyone <laughs> out there knows how to find or has a copy of Dealing or the Berkeley to Boston 40 Brick Lost Bag Blues from 1972... <laughs> Let me know. I want to find this film. Can you imagine the uh, poor kid who had to build the marquee for that movie for the theater <laughs> show? It's like, wait, how, what? Oh, man. It's just like all night. He's outside with the suction cup putting. It's like, this is too long. <laughs> just call it Joe or something. Just like, come on. <laughs> well, it could. It, that's a film that could have run in a double feature yeah. with Joe. Yeah, right. <laughs> that would have worked. Yeah. Um, Interestingly about Paul Williams, he went he went to Harvard where he met up with Ed Pressman and they were they started their first film company together. Hmm. Now, Ed Pressman was we discussed in the episode on fur. He was the producer on that. And he went on to be a uh, be a major, major producer. And you can kind of see a situation where they got together. They had this idea and Paul Williams wanted to be the artist and Edward Pressman wanted to be the business guy. Yeah. And Edward Pressman is still <laughs> got to make a lot more movies than uh than uh than Paul Williams. Ditched his old buddy. <laughs> and then, you know, there's there's a few others. Nunzio from 78 is it's pretty sweet. The version that's on YouTube is very is is pretty crappy. Yeah, uh, as is the version of November Men. I'm sure that whatever you will find, and if we, if I'm able to, I will upload it and put it on our site, so at least you can see the trauma video, <laughs> the trauma uh, previews before it. Cutting in here just to let you know that I did post the video for November Men on Vimeo, and a link to it is on the episode page for this episode at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. And then uh, the only other film of his, I, he has a film called Miss Wright that I haven't been able to find, and a film called Mirage with uh, from 1995 
with Edward James Olmos and Sean Young. Ooh. And it's one of those mid-90s, low-budget thrillers. Edward James Olmos is great in it. James Andronica is in it again, shows up again. <laughs> They he and Paul Williams work really well together. Paul Williams acts in it. Sean Young is really good until she has to affect an Irish accent. Oh no! And then it is <laughs> it is so terrible. And but but it is kind of amazing watching Edward James Olmos work with it. Like I want to see him try to do an Irish accent. See you're Edward watching James him, and you're just like, "How we, you are such a pro, man! You are <laughs> such a pro. How did you not? Uh, how did no one test out this accent? Before? I'm sure that they they offered her the role. I bet at the time she was still a movie star, and they offered her the role and asked, "Can you do an Irish accent?" And she said, "Oh, sure." And that was like, "Okay, we got John Young." <laughs> Like, wait a minute. Um. No, it's it's bad. Um, so that let's let's go back to well. Anything else? Any other questions about? No, Paul it's just Lynch? interesting to hear about. You know, it's just always fun when you find and like this happens on the show of ours all the time. And you find out about a filmmaker that you've never heard of, and then all of a sudden, you have this whole kind of rabbit hole to go down. And that's why I hated every time at the fucking video store when some schmo would come in and be like. I've seen everything. I've there's no movie left for me to see. It's just like bullshit. <laughs> there's always forever. I think someone actually has a time machine and they're going back in time and they're making more movies for us to find out. Because like whenever I think that I've hit a wall of seeing it all, there's a treasure trove of more. Like I've never heard of Nunzio. I want to see some David Provel thing with Joe Spinelli. Like, that sounds great. Like I'm excited. <laughs> No, I, I didn't even see this, but I'm looking at his Wikipedia. And this, I'm just going to read this sentence, and you could take it, take it for what it is. In the fall of 2017, The Orchard released Paul Williams' production of The Amazing Adventure of Marcello the Cat, a feature film made with no cast other than live cats, voiced by Michelle Rodriguez, Jeremy Piven, et al. Uh, so he's still going, <laughs> making, making his own outsider is, art of whatever. He is finding ways to make movies. I just, I fucking love it. And he's alive and I, I, oh God, I hope, I, I, I hope he gets to hear this because no one <laughs> out there is celebrating him. And if they are, they're actually celebrating <laughs> a, an architect or an English director or yeah. a songwriter um so let's let's talk about some more of this movie like let's um november man but like there's so many the, tributaries the scene yeah you know just it just like we're in a room with a yarn talking about who's <laughs> gonna kill this it's very much like a conspiracy movie to get you onto your own tangents that lead you eventually to an all cat movie voiced by jeremy piven but, <laughs> but the so the scenes that we talked about where it's like the reality it's it's cra it's crazy because it's like there's the one that the the, the kind of where he's at a con the convention and George Bush is on the stage you know giving a speech and he's walking around it's very Tanner eighty eight like 
But imagine mm-hmm. if Tanner eighty eight he was there being like, oh, I'm gonna kill Michael Dukakis, <laughs> <laughs> and he's talking really loud about it, like really Squeaky Frome at a gun, and she, you know, <laughs> so that's it's just like I mean, and, and sure they got away with it because like when you're at something like that, you have cameras, and like, and this is certainly how like the better Sasha Baron Cohen movie Borat, you know, the Borat movies, like he's able to get to go to these places because. People have cameras. People have, you know, you're filming the thing. So why not make a movie? If the if the aesthetic is to be kind of documentary like, you can get away with a small group of people making your little secret, you know, shots, secret movie. Um, and so yeah, the part and like there's so many scenes, and that's what's the, the one of the funnier things about this movie is there's so many scenes of people just out loud, literally saying like. Yeah, we're gonna kill George Bush, or like, yeah, we're gonna make this movie about killing a president, and it's like, <laughs> clearly this is a pre, uh, you know, Patriot Act, and they're not worried about anyone listening in to anything that they're saying, because uh, it's just like they definitely are all saying it out loud, and that's why everyone's confused around them being like, so wait, is this for the movie? Are you actually gonna try to kill the president? Like, and everyone seems kind of on edge in this movie, wondering. Who's doing, is, is this going to actually go as far as they think it is? And then as a movie watcher, you'd feel the same way. Like, I couldn't imagine watching this in 1990 to 93 and not thinking like, is this like some, is this like a snuff film sort of thing hidden within this weird exploitation A presidential sort of snuff film. Yeah. <laughs> is this a presidential snuff film? Yeah. It's, it's why. And then, yeah, you see they, them filming from a building, the motorcade driving down the street. And it's like, and you can't help but think of, you know, like Kennedy, Kennedy assassination, like book depository being like, what if he had a camera? This is what the shot would look like <laughs> next to where he shot. So it is like this kind of dangerous, unnerving, sort of like crazy film making, you know? Um, yeah. And I just, and just uh, the filmmaking. So I, I, I'm moved the politics of this film grab me. Like, not the idea of killing the president, but the frustrations that this character has are very much in line with me. It's like, it's why I have my rant about the trial of the Chicago 7. <laughs> but as I'm watching it, I'm also just really struck by what a good filmmaker he is. And in a way, again, all these other films that I, we I talked about, there's really good stuff in all of them. But there's just... There's great stuff in this. The shifts, the way, the the, the shifting points of view. So like it, it starts off, it's all the, it's from the director's point of view and somewhat from his girlfriend's point of view, witnessing him. Yeah. And it's kind of, she's kind of the witness in all of this. But at some point, well into the movie, we start to get a voiceover and we realize that she has now started informing on the director to the secret service and that shift is done so well i just like it's one of these things throughout the movie there are all of these really wonderful bits of filmmaking yeah that are low budget but really smart and just build out the world and definitely the way the climax is handled with everybody in different locations in the way it jumps around and who's watching who and like, and you kind of, you get a little confused intentionally of sort of like, okay, who's going to be where looking at who through the scope of what to like, and that, that part is very well done. And what what's interesting about this movie is that it also though works as sort of 
if you wanted just to watch kind of a low budget you know political thriller which is not normally a genre that's not you like usually a movie on this level of a budget is a horror movie or an erotic thriller like no one's really trying to aim for political thriller those things tend to be handled by hollywood not really low budget you know things and but the movie does pay off is that in this like there are like parts of this movie that feel kind of cheesy. And I wonder if it's intentional to kind of hide within this movie, this kind of weirder, like you're kind of tricking people to watch something they wouldn't normally watch. Like, like the soundtrack of this movie is not great. It's kind of like a basic synthy sort of soundtrack that at times you wonder if it's supposed to be funny or not, the way the tone they play with tone. But, Mm -hmm. but then you wonder like, but is that intentional? Because this is, I mean, this is a movie that they agreed to have trauma release. And it's not like college professors are renting trauma movies. Like people who are renting trauma movies are dudes who go to the cult section, you know, because they smoked a lot of weed and they're going to wa- rent a trauma movie, you know, like 20 year olds. <laughs> so it's it's kind of smart if it is intentional to kind of still have it work sort of schlocky in a way of it being sort of this kind of you know, it's not, it's not an art film is what I'm saying. Like this movie's not made like some pretentious art film. It still works as this low budget kind of thriller, but then there's all these weird things kind of embedded uh, in it. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. That's, I think that's part of it. It's just, it has you coming and going and being like, okay, like, (laughs) And I guess it's probably different because, again, my the reason I was interested in this was because I wanted a JFK kind of political thriller. And I got that. And I also feel like even though it's so low budget and all they could get, I imagine they didn't start by pitching it to Troma. No, I bet this seems like a movie they made probably with their own money. And then Troma destroyed Well, with Robert Davi's money. Or with Robert Davi's money. And then Troma put it out. Like, that's what it feels like. And Troma, I don't know if they do it anymore. I don't actually have no idea what Troma's up to now. But they used to do this all the time where they would put, like, they, they didn't make Death by Temptation, but they released Death by Temptation. They would take these small, kind of weird movies. Like, another great one is Combat Shock. Have you ever seen Combat Shock? No. That's this weird sort of movie about this Vietnam vet, and it's also an homage to Racerhead, and it's about this Vietnam vet, like, living, and he's a junkie, and it's just like, he's got PTSD, and it's, but it was sold by Troma with this outrageous cover, making it look like, you know, Sergeant Kabuki Man, but when you watch it, you're like, this is not like a Troma movie, <laughs> and so they I, they definitely, I, I, I don't agree with their outrageous racist humor that they showed us in the opening trailers but i do applaud them for along with all their schlock putting out these interesting weird little movies that wouldn't that wouldn't have gotten a push at the time um yeah like i don't know like why they aren't putting november men out now on blu-ray or dvd maybe that's paul williams doesn't want it that way who knows be interesting to hear from him about why is this movie hard to find? Did Troma get a uh, let secret letter in the mail saying like, "No, you can't, <laughs> you can't do this anymore. You can't put out this." But we don't want to encourage people to make movies that kind of do do what they did in this movie. Um. <laughs> yeah, this film. 
it really it spills out over the edges in all of these ways that it just leaves you in this it leaves you with so many questions yeah about the making of the making of the movie about yeah. what's real and what isn't it it really and it it invites that kind of confusion in a way that I just love and in, I, I I can't think of I really it's hard for me to think of many other movies that achieve that level of I don't know truly meta mind fuck like it's <laughs> like I really believe that Paul Williams is that angry He's angry enough at George Bush that he made his best movie about assassinating George Bush. <laughs> he's not I'm not afraid that he's going to assassinate George Bush, but I believe that this is a true story for him that he wants to make a movie that makes you feel like this. Like I I'm sure like he watched I don't know. God, I would like I just I would so love to ask him questions cuz I, I well, it's so easy movie... to project upon it, but but like you, this is clearly a post JFK movie. It's even referenced in the movie. They talk about yeah. the Oliver Stone movie. Well, because they're and a movie they... pitching a movie, and they're referring <laughs> to a popular movie at the time. It so was it's, also... it totally makes sense. So like you have this other movie that came out at the time that was made by Hollywood. There was a big movie about the Kennedy assassination and all the conspiracies with it or truths, depending on how you look at it. And uh, and this is definitely like a movie that you could totally see fans of that movie making. At least the characters in the movie, you know, being like, I loved yeah. that Oliver Stone movie. Do you like Oliver Stone's JFK? I <laughs> I have similar feelings about Oliver Stone that I have about Aaron Sorkin. I would actually. you know what? I would love to hear if you can do an a short version of what is your feelings on Oliver Stone? Because I've heard it before and I find it interesting. And I would like our listeners to hear it. So to me, I feel like so I'm gonna talk in the language of this film. So don't take me as like saying I think this is true, but I'm gonna I'm gonna speak in the language of November men. I think Oliver Stone is CIA. He has always been CIA, and his job as an agent is to masquerade as a left-wing filmmaker and put out propaganda that totally revises the story of the 60s. <laughs> and conservatives will pretend to be mad at him, but ultimately every one of his films has a deeply conservative message. So The Doors becomes an anti-drug movie... <laughs> Uh, all his Vietnam movies are about how we betrayed the troops. We should have given, we should have let them be more effective killers. Uh, Nixon makes Nixon a sympathetic character. Brilliant. Yeah. I love Nixon. I love it as a filmmaker. God, it's a brilliant film, but it's also a deeply, <laughs> deeply conservative film. JFK plays with like basically it's messy enough in its portrayal of the conspiracy theory that it ends up debunking the conspiracy theory <laughs> but all that it's debunking is oliver stone's manipulation of the conspiracy theory it's so many levels of of deep that if my theory is true i gotta respect it uh <laughs> 
in the same way that I feel about the trial of the Chicago (laughs) seven. I respect it, but it's not good. (laughs) It's not true. It's not good in the sense of morally good. Aesthetically, (laughs) it's fucking great. If you love movies, you have to love these movies. If you're a, if you're a, if you're a conservative person who's angry at Oliver Stone you are the world that's wrong, man. These movies are for you. <laughs> and if you're a, if you're some sort of, you think you're some sort of wild-eyed progressive re- revolutionary, and Oliver Stone is your Bible, well, then you're wrong. <laughs> you're wrong too. And again, I could be totally wrong. There's things that Oliver Stone does and says that I agree with. And at the same time, that's what he'd do if his job as an agent <laughs> exactly were to do this. So where is the conspiracy movie biopic about Oliver Stone and who's going to make that movie? I want to see the movie that's like his movie. Paul Williams! <laughs> I really hope, I love like talking about these things. I really love to think that like hundreds of years ago, someone saw like Henry IV and was the same way. Be like, that's not what Henry the Fourth was like. That's not what it was like. And I, I read a book about it. And they like this Shakespeare took liberties, and that didn't happen. And they didn't. See well, I mean, I'm sure it was the case. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course. Shakespeare would not have been successful if he didn't make effective propaganda for the people <laughs> who were the rulers of his time. And he found ways to do really interesting stuff with it. And once. The real people are all gone, and those his- and all that history is faded. It you know it's not so. Well, it's like the it's like the tragedy plus time thing yeah. from what is it Crimes and Misdemeanors, uh, the Woody Allen film. Mm-hmm. That's more about comedy, but I think it's the same thing with what we're talking about with political stuff. You know, once a better uh, empire takes over, and America just be is just another country and our stories don't affect everyone this will be much these will be much more benign stories <laughs> but uh yeah so that's my take on oliver stone and so i wanted to take that again i'm liking how this episode's taking these little tangents i feel like the characters in this movie would be talking the same way about any and this movie kind of does that too it does like this movie doesn't work in a straight line it does get like wait where are they going are they doing like who's like and there's a lot of characters and there's scenes that end up being like dream sequences that seem really real within the movie where it's placed. And you're like, oh, shit, he just killed those people? And they're like, oh, no, that was a, it was a hallucination. It was a dream. And so this movie itself. But then sometimes they really do kill people. Or really, do they? Because it's just then, a movie. And, 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 and please watch this movie, you know, it, but like before you listen to this, if possible, it's hard to find. But like, and I won't, maybe I won't go into the details, but then the movie itself at the end has like another twist. Like you think it's done. And it then again, twisting. it keeps twisting. Yeah. And then I even with, and even within that twist, it twists. Yes. At the very end, you think it's done going like, here's what this movie is. Now it's this. Oh, now it's this. And then like when the movies, it kind of was weird when the movie ended. I couldn't really remember a lot of it in a way because it kind of went to so many places that it wasn't as... It wasn't as easy to follow as a movie, you know, that would like, like as a good political thriller does. It just constantly is playing with what you believe is true or not and who to trust. And like, you know, and like so this movie did its homework in making it like like a political thriller like this in the parallax view or whatever, you know, like it has yeah. that kind of that 
where you don't trust like you, it's about a movie about people who don't trust things, but then you don't trust the people in the movie, even the people that are supposedly the he- the quote unquote heroes, you don't quite trust them or the truth, yeah. the, their truth and what, you know, and that makes for a very layered movie. Yeah, I guess we, we haven't really explained. So basically, so this this director, so he decides to do this film. And then when he's talking about, actually, it's kind of inspirational for me as an actor because there's uh, as a point when he's describing who he's looking for. And I don't remember, maybe it's his girlfriend who says to him, you don't want an actor, you want a nut. <laughs> and then they cut to James Andronica. But in my fantasy, they cut to me. And that's that's how I'm gonna get my next acting gig. That's what they're gonna. That's what they're gonna say before that thing is like the nut to this guy. And then they're gonna cut to this podcast. And, yeah, it, it just and me ranting about Oliver Stone being an, a CIA agent. I love it. Um, and I running love... a psyop on American film. But yeah. think, and speaking of cuts that are totally shocking, if you don't know that Robert Davi's in this movie, it's very shocking when he shows up, and it's even more shocking that he's playing himself. Out of all the people you would expect to see in the middle of this movie, hard cut to them begging Robert Davi on, I think, a golf course? Or they're outside. doing. He's doing something. He's doing rich guy stuff. Doing rich guy stuff. He's he's shooting (laughs) once, and then he's about to go. Doesn't he go and get on a horse or something? I don't know. (laughs) And he's wearing, like, a baseball cap. You know, Robert Davi wears hats well. He's wearing a baseball cap, and then the second time he shows up, he's wearing like a cowboy hat, like a bejeweled cowboy hat. No lines uh, in the second scene. He doesn't say <laughs> one word. He just looks, book, he just stares him down. And I don't know if it's an in-joke, because clearly he is pals with James Andronica, because James Andronica wrote a movie with Robert Davi in 2007, a movie Robert Davi directed called The Dukes, starring Peter Bogdanovich to tie it back in with Cat's Meow, and Chaz Palminteri. So wow. that so they're clearly, you know, Italian American brethren in the film industry hanging out together making movies as they should. And they I don't know if it's a joke if it's supposed to be a joke in the November Men, but they kind of portray Robert Davi as like, well, this is the richest guy we know. Like clearly this guy has the money to bankroll a feature-length motion picture, which I don't know like Sure, he was, you know, in Die Hard a few years before this as, you know, like, 12th rung character. Not, not even, like, 20 down. Like, I don't think that Robert Dobby's been a star, was a star, the star of a movie by 1993. But they treat it as if he is, like, Tom Cruise just wearing fine clothes and can just, like, throw a million dollars at a movie. Just write a check. And that scene is great because he doesn't want to do it. He's like, wait, what is your movie about? No, I don't want to do. I don't want to do that. I like it. But does it have to be the president of the United States? Yes. Love this. You know why can't it be some banana republic dictator, or maybe uh, Saddam Hussein? He's not the enemy. You know this is. Uh, you're going to cause a lot of political trouble here. I'm best friends with Arnold, okay? He's close to Bush. I get Christmas cards from the White House. They'll blame me, not Robert Davi. They're not going to see you, Arthur. They're going to see me. I can't get the money without you. You're the only actor that doesn't bullshit me. There are no actors, only actresses. 
How much are you going to need to, to cowboy this whole thing? Without you? Yeah. As much as you can manage. I'll pay you back with interest. They all like, does it have to be uh, the real president? And he's like, yeah, it really has to be. And like, that's the whole idea. And he's like, and, and he's, you can imagine these are people. I'm sure he's having these conversations when he's pitching this film. When his it's pal like, James hey. is like, hey, Bobby, you want to be in this movie? We're going to actually film by George Bush, actually talk about how we want to kill him. And then that's what the movie's going to be about. And what do you want me to play? We want you to play you and you produce that movie. <laughs> and so... I love that David showed up and and guess what? He does write the check. He you know he does it. <laughs> and then and then it makes you wonder, because I looked it up, but it's not on IMDb. I'm like, did Robert Davi help produce this movie? Or is this just in the movie a joke? Because again, is it a joke in the end credits it says a Robert Davi production? <laughs> did you notice that? Like that's in the actual end credits of oh, this yeah, movie. No, it's presented it's, by presented yeah. by Robert Davi. So, like, the jokes just keep coming or he actually secretly <laughs> paid for this movie and maybe decided to not have his name on the on IMDb or the box of being someone behind a movie about killing George Bush. But it sure makes for a fun <laughs> time. And it, well, but it, 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 the other part about it is that, so Robert Davi is the only star that anyone would know who's mm -hmm. in this movie. Yep. And he's uncredited. So... <laughs> He's credit, so they have every reason to want to promote it as Robert Davi being in the film, and we we have to assume that if they say it's presented by Robert Davi, they're friends, and they could list his name on the film. But by not listing his name on the film, they expand the world even more at like in a way that ultimately hurts the film commercially, you know, because it doesn't have their star, but it makes you buy the film even more when Robert Davi shows up and he gives them money and says, but I'm not going to be in your movie. And then you look at the credits and he's not in the credits and you're like, okay, well maybe he, but what, like, I don't know what's true or not, which is exactly the feeling you want to get. Also, I just, I was just doing a little research here. So, sorry for the bad things we said about the music in the film. The one song that's credited here is written by Vincent Andronica. Sleep Tight, My Little One is uh, is featured in the film. So uh, the, the whole Andronica family got involved in this one. The, kids, uh, the kid, uh, the, the, uh, the, the Duggo's baby? baby, is played by uh, Baby Andronica. Uh, what's Baby Andronica doing right now? Has she seen this movie? Has Dad shown her? This is your movie. Or she just like, Dad, don't let anyone know oh. I'm in this movie. <laughs> Sabrina Fair Andronica. That's her name. You're, you're, you're stuck with it. Uh, but so the other thing about the characters in this film, we didn't mention. So he uh, he gets Duggo. He also hires two Middle Eastern men who seem to be very angry at George Bush. I, I recognize one of those actors. I'm gonna murder yes. his name, but his name Syed is Syed Badrea. I've seen him, and he's like in season so he's a kingpin as the mechanic, I believe, uh, who says that someone put sugar in Woody Harrelson's tank. I think that's him, and uh, I think he was in. Oh, he's oh, he was in uh, Zohan, my boy Sandler's movie. You don't mess with mm -hmm. the Zohan, um, and the Three Stooges movie. So clearly the. Fairly Brothers like him, you know, they're fans. Iron uh, Man, he, he's an Iron Man, so the guy the guy works. Yeah, he's really good. The guy works. And he was also 
uh, probably most importantly, he also had a role in Mirage with uh, <laughs> so they all Edward got James along. Olmos and, it's a it's, Sean it's Young. Nice that they keep these friends around. <laughs> yeah, Paul Williams must be a nice guy, uh, a fun, or at least a guy you respect, a guy you like to work with. Um, and then there's also a character. What was his name? A character played by an actor simply known as Dominic, who was never in another film. He plays Sibby, who is a black actor who wants to be in the film, but is afraid that he's being set up as the patsy because basically because the black guy always gets set up. It's basically his his pitch. And turns out he's not the one who's being set up as the patsy. But he's also basically he's everyone that Paul Williams, the director played by Paul Williams, and that's not actually his name in the film, the character's name. I keep calling him Paul Williams, but he plays Arthur Gwenlin. But I'm just going to keep calling him Paul Williams because there's a, <laughs> it's already too confusing. But basically everyone he hires is the kind of person that the Secret Service or the CIA would surveil as a potential assassin if they showed up at a George Bush event. <laughs> Black guy, Middle Eastern men, <laughs> and a former... I guess Duggo is the one who seems like he might fit in there, which yeah. I guess is why he's the assassin. Yeah. Uh, because he's a military guy. So everyone else seems like there is a potential... Pat is or is cast as a potential patsy for this film. And then there's... A guy who, so they're casting, they want someone who has, who, so they're having an audition. They put out a casting call for an actor, for actors who really have AIDS. This is 1993. I wanted, and there's, <laughs> I imagine that's the one scene Lloyd Kaufman saw and was like, yes, this will, Troma will release this movie. This must be a comedy for us, right? right. Uh, didn't so watch the rest there, of the movie. There's an actor, I think. His name is Rod Ellis. His picture's not on. Uh, is not here. But if it's not, I'll. If it's not him, I'll just correct it. There's a. So there's an actor who's auditioning, and Paul Williams is like, "You don't really have AIDS. You just." <laughs> and he's like, "But I just want to be in the movie. I didn't know you wanted. Like, I've got a kid who needs. Like, I got him. I need this gig. I need this gig." And he's a kind of a likable. He's like one of the people in this movie who you could see actually being in other movies mm -hmm. and i kind of like this character and then basically they won't let him be in the movie because he doesn't really have aids and then <laughs> as we're as we're seeing them shooting their movie which might also be them preparing for the assassination we see this actor filming the crew basically surveilling them and we don't really know what's up with that. And then later on in the film, he comes back and says, hey, I want to be in your movie. I've been following you and filming you. And you can use this as part of your movie. And they're like, what? <laughs> okay, I guess. And that's when, and at that point, they look down, Paul Williams looks down, and he actually has a, what I assume is a pretty valuable vintage uh, Life magazine with 
Lee Harvey Oswald on the cover, the the magazine that was featured in JFK where the shadow is different. And so it looks like he wasn't really filmed there and that's used to set him up as a patsy. And all of that's really good, except that I do have a question about in this very cheap movie, the that's like the most expensive special effect. <laughs> it's like, that's going to be a very valuable life magazine. And why do you have it here? Like, I guess... <laughs> I guess you're showing it to the cast and saying, hey, th you know, this is what we're going to do. But it does sort of set up that, OK, now they're going to set up this guy who I just write in my notes as Beardy because uh, he's got a beard. <laughs> they said they're going to set up Beardy as a patsy. Yeah. And then there's another great scene where Beardy is buying a hot dog from a one-armed hot dog vendor in a park and he's got his hands all full of hot dogs <laughs> and when he goes for his wallet his wallet falls out and it reveals that he's a cop he's a cop and i don't know that again some there's a lot of goodness in that scene for for yeah. what it has to do like it basically the the notes on the script is like he goes to buy a hot dog. Like, yeah, we have to reveal that he's a cop. How about he so buys a hot do dog for a one-armed man, and he's all butterfingers, and he drops that dog. He yeah. yeah. And then he gets in the car with these other Secret Service guys. <laughs> and that scene, James Andronic is a really good writer. That's part of what makes this film work, is that a lot of the dialogue scenes are just... It's, it doesn't take a lot of money to get three good actors in a car... Yeah. Like good three good no name actors in a car and if you give them good things to say and they know how to act you're going to have a scene. Like that little bit is just a nice little like could be everything in here could be in a real movie mm -hmm. except for the the whole story in the politics. <laughs> <laughs> like you no one could I love it they made a movie that you could never get made and it actually holds up as a good movie in a lot of ways. Yeah. I think. I thought when I was watching that scene that that was a scene you'd like for the comedy aspects. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. very, interest, very interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's... And it's funny, you, you mentioned the music, but I really, one of the music things that they do, there's this, in this movie that is so dark and, and intense and sort of has all the, like, very political... When the music that they play, when they reveal that they've just been filming, feels almost like Curb Your Enthusiasm music. It really does. It's like extra whimsy. We're like, oh, but, but, okay. But also haunting. <laughs> it's not like it's not quite as bum bum bum. But it is. Yeah. It's it's like it is this sort of like comedy music, but it's also a little bit haunting. Again. Inc like I'm, I'm sure that sound cue did not cost them a lot of money, and man, did Paul Williams get his money's worth, right? Yeah. Because like, every time it plays, right up to the, you know, that music, it's this <laughs> haunting comedy music it's, that gets more haunting. And it throws the tone off. It's like, like we see with that hot dog scene. Is like IMDb lists this movie as a thriller first, then a drama, and that's it. But there's definitely, there is definitely comedy in this movie, and it's play. It's not like subtle comedy within a thriller drama like this movie gets a little silly gets a little weird like this movie like this it's perfect that trauma put it out because trauma movies they never were in a genre at least in any video store i ever went in they were always in the cult section which is where you put kind of all your weird outsider i don't know what the fuck this movie is movie 
And this movie definitely fits in that. Because if you had just put this in the thriller section or drama section, you would have pissed off some people who rented it thinking it was one thing and then being like, what the fuck is this? So like it has to exist in that genreless sort of like, what is this movie? Um, it is definitely a unique thing. <laughs> and I, I honestly, I don't know if it necessarily works completely, but it's fascinating. You know, it's definitely like a very interesting movie. So what? What? Uh, just I'm curious for you, what is the aspect of it that feels like it doesn't work? I think it's just. I feel like it, it, it kind of, it gets weighed down for me in some of its limitations of being like a very low budget movie where you just kind of see it frayed or on the edges a bit that could took, like if this was a slightly more, if this was slightly more expensive and had the budget to kind of really build, like kind of have the shots match the, the stuff, the tension or whatever in certain moments. But at the same time, if this movie was more gorilla and even more homemade, and that would make it feel more dangerous. So it's kind of in this in-between place that doesn't aesthetically quite gel for me, you know? Like, it doesn't quite get there. Like, with the music and stuff for me, it doesn't quite get, you know? And this is the same dance that the kind of Cat's Meow did that we talked about last week. It, like, it has its limitations, because it, it like you know like that saxophone player who's not a very yeah. <laughs> you know like there's certain things like if you're really watching it like a film person like me or you like occasionally you get kind of you kind of get wrapped up into being picky about the filmmaking yeah. and that yeah. took me it took me out of the movie a little bit you know but because the movie was interesting enough i was able to kind of be pulled back in whenever i found myself being like why is this the music or why like what is that like that looks cheap you know but then you kind of get but like if the movie's good enough, it can rise above those things, you know, but like that's sort of like it's a messy thing. Like it's a, it's, a, it's an admirable thing to make your low budget movie bigger than with bigger ideas, because it's so easy yeah. to make your low budget movie like this movie could have very easily been some 90s indie thing of a bunch of dudes hanging out and just complaining about the government and make it kind of like a clerk sort of. <laughs> old men in a coffee shop just bitching about politics yeah. sort of movie which would have sucked. not as interesting would, as this because yeah. that's real life like, like if you sat with these people for two hours like if it was a my dinner with andre thing you might be really annoyed by them but like having it be in the context of the story and but all these things like you get really like they tried to make a real movie out of it with their limited budget which i like i think that's what you do is you write your script and you just figure out how to make it no matter how much money you have you just go to robert davi all every filmmaker should love is you go to Robert Davi, ask for a million dollars, and make the weird little movie you want. Well, it's funny. <laughs> so, so he was Ed Pressman's partner, like major, major guy, like the guy who produced. They like they produced Badlands. You know, that's like, so. And then when he's when he doesn't have, I guess Pressman in his corner anymore, that's what he's doing. He's going hat in hand to. I don't know who gave him the money for Nunzio, but Davi gives him the money for... <laughs> we have to imagine that at least, again, if we get him on the show, maybe he'll tell us who gave him the money for this. But I also noticed that on Mirage, Chuck Plotkin, who was Bruce Springsteen's producer, is listed as producer. He has no other credits as a film, as a film <laughs> producer. And I just figure... Paul Williams must must know they must know each other from you know just being I guess 
maybe through Springsteen or lefty stuff, like Hollywood stuff. And, and it's another situation like, okay, some guy, some guy has, you got, give me some of that Springsteen money. I can make this movie. And I'm sure he's not asking, like, I don't know how much these movies cost, you know, doesn't Half seem a million like, dollars less than that. Probably this feels in the 90s, like, like maybe like a hundred grand. <laughs> like they're not paying movie stars. Robert Davi probably didn't even get paid for his scenes on this. They f- maybe they paid him SAG minimum. <laughs> Everyone else is is a no money. I mean, you know, the the screenwriter and the director are the stars of it. And you they're know, not, maybe that's why Davi didn't give his credit. Maybe he's like, "You'd have to pay me SAG if I'm in the credits. Just don't credit me, and I'll be in your movie for for, for a hundred bucks or a sandwich in 1990, or whatever." In 1993, a SAG day rate, the minimum rate was like. Three or four hundred bucks. I'm sure they could have afforded. I'm not paying Robert Davi. Like <laughs> that's food to pay the to eat the or the crew to eat. Like no. Yeah, we're the fork budget on this film is killing us. You know how many takes did he break those forks and they have to start over again? Like the cutting room floor. That's- uh, <laughs> uh, I think we got we got to play that scene. There's so many Please. good political yeah. scenes, but we got to play Fork. that scene on the going out. <laughs> <laughs> She's so upset. She is so good. She's upset. She's as upset about that fork breaking as the stars of this movie are about America's death. Like that's how upset she is about that fork. So, yeah. Now, I, there's one. When you you talk about the low budgetness of it, but there's one little sort of side story we'll get into. So, uh, Duggo, the James Andronica char- character, who's you know just he's a very tightly wound uh, sniper. Long-range sniper, Marine, uh, former Marine, wants to get back into the Marines. They won't take him. That scene. Oh, again, not a lot of money, but that's a good scene when he goes back and tries to get the get his mm-hmm. old commander to let him in. Mm-hmm. Really, really just good writing, not flashy directing, good acting, no money. Got it in the can. Good, good thing. But... <laughs> He's got this neighbor, this loud neighbor, who is a bully and, you know, he we don't like from the from the get go. And when Duggo snaps, you know, I whatever spoiler. I don't think this is or this is an important spoiler. Uh, but he finds a very high peak, you know, a mile or so away from the building and uh, blows the neighbor's head off with this high-range rifle, with this uh, long-range sniper's rifle. And all of that had very, gave me very Tarantino, Reservoir Dogsy kind of feelings. Did you? Yeah. Just like, the just the, it's 1995. It's a, it's a quality of filmmaking. But like the exploding head and the the violence of it, the sort of violence the and weird comedy. Comedy, yeah, yeah. It definitely had that kind of Tarantino 90s thing for that. Just that scene, though. Like this movie yeah. does these crazy shifts. Like that scene, there's no other scene like that in the movie. But it, that is a good scene. It's a weird scene. Uh, and it's shocking. You do not expect to see that guy's head explode. But they show it, kind of. You know, yeah, in a, in a movie way, <laughs> and it's like really gory and over the top. But there's no other violence really like that in the movie. Just this little spurt, very interesting. Also, and I I can't imagine it was an intentional thing, but Duggo's relationship with his kid 
and how they express his insanity in his relationship with his kid really made me think of Chameleon Street. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I'm not. No, that, it, that, it, it, it totally yeah, did. No, it totally that. did. No, it totally did. Like, yeah, like I've totally felt like there's something about, yeah, the way this movie's being dangerous with its characters too, where you're just sort of like, I hope this guy doesn't snap in the scene and hurt this child. Yeah, no, that definitely, I definitely. And I mean, in a way, this movie is kind of reminds me of Chameleon Street. Also, just again, a movie with a very low budget, uh, really aiming high with its ideas. Like if you have really big ideas, it doesn't matter how much money you have for your movie. Like you can make something interesting if your ideas go go big. Yes. And we haven't revealed it, but the, the title of this film, not the film we're talking about, the November Men, but the title of the film within the film, November Men. Did you pick up on the title? No. Crosspoint. <laughs> they only say it once. And now we have only said it once. Well, uh, anything else to say about this film? I feel like um, we've... Uh... It's, I was able to find it under the name Double Exposure, which is my guess an alternate title that was also released on maybe VHS under that name too. Oh, the conspiracy. So, the, the, and that is a terrible title. Double exposure is not as good as the November Men. Uh, doesn't sound as that sounds more like an erotic thriller. Double. It should exposure. have been called Crosspoint. The the. That's yeah. a missed opportunity. If you're going to pick a dumb name, <laughs> to bury this film under, why not just call it Crosspoint? Yeah. Double exposure. There's Double no, exposure doesn't make sense. It uh, makes no sense. But that it was called that's. When it's, I found it on YouTube under Double Exposure. Maybe it's because there are so many Paul Williams. <laughs> it's a reference to the fact that there are so many different Paul Williams. The other Paul uh, Williams. Yeah, there's just... <laughs> I, okay, that we're not quite done because... Okay, now having discussed the film, what do you think about the conspiracy theory about the November Men that... This is a film that is too dangerous, even <laughs> at its own level, for it to be allowed to exist. So much so that it actually retroactively means excising Paul Williams as a director from the cinematic canon. Because this film is buried and his entire filmography pretty much is buried and it's kind of interesting. Actually, we haven't even really got into the whole, like, he's he's wrapped up with John Voight, who is another sort of political outlier to the story. But I feel like that's a little bit of a red herring because that that doesn't really, that's, that's thinking about now. Yeah. But you have this guy who is working in the 70s with really interesting people making really interesting movies, the kind of people that if you're into film, you're going to be into a Joe Spinell film with Mama Corleone in 1978. And you're going to be into a film about revolutionaries from 1970 with Robert Duvall and Seymour Cassell and John Voight. Yeah. And you're, de you know, it, so it's, it is odd that these films have not, found some sort of retro, I don't know, uh, revival, considering that how much stuff has. I mean, you're writing a book on the Emmanuel films, for God's sake. I mean, 
<laughs> Everything gets a book. Where's the Paul Williams? I mean, we not only does he not have a book, he doesn't have any. His films are almost impossible to find. Yeah, I feel like I really would love to see a theater do like a little mini retrospective of him. Like I would love to see like the new Beverly or like, you know, Austin Film Society or someplace do like it's not a lot of movies Like you can do it in a week. <laughs> and I'm sure he'll come out and talk. It's just it's just weird when you find these things that like you think, you know, that like, you know, like the new Hollywood is certainly talked about a lot, you know, on a million podcasts and books. And you think that people would have stumbled across his movies because they're in that time. They're in that place, you know, and his movies seem to be even more uh, outright political than a lot of the other stuff that came out at that time. So it's like it is interesting that he is not kind of, you know, dan danced about with at least in some of these things that kind of cover other movies from that time. Uh, yeah. But it is, but you're right. It is perfect <laughs> for a movie about conspiracy theories and cover-ups and whatever that this has also happened to the filmmaker and the movie. Like it had, it kind of makes it. It's better. It's than if this movie was loved and on Blu-ray and everyone knew about it. Kind of gives it, it and it adds this nice, you know, layer to it. You know, it makes it more da even more dangerous. Yeah. Um. <laughs> It's funny. Can you imagine if the Austin Film Society did a Paul Williams film festival and like half of the people who showed up were just terribly <laughs> disappointed because it's not the Phantom of the <laughs> Paradise, Paradise and it's not uh, it's not Broadchurch and the Eichmann show and it's not about <laughs> architecture like so many people are showing up and be like. What? That Paul Williams? <laughs> well, just like... No, with, no, no. Uh... Stick around and watch. You're going to love this. Just watch. Go for it. Just I, I dare anyone. It's it, This one you can find. I dare you to watch. Go for it. This is not... It's not political at all. And not be just sort of charmed at the really... You mean out of it? Wonderful... Oh, did I say out of it? I say go for it? Yes. Yeah, sorry. Out of it. It's it's such a, a well-made, precocious thoughtful sort of lovable film of the era and it's so just like classically mm, good looking film it just makes you want to it makes you root for this director and then you add november men to that and that's two films in his filmography just on their own that are like okay well this guy is probably worth a conversation i think someone like you need to have someone like a criterion just put out a little set like they used to do those eclipse sets they were great because they were for filmmakers people didn't quite know about but were important like i bought their robert downey senior set like there's no extra features it's just the movies and they should do something like that with the paul williams just be like because like you know that when somebody like that puts a spotlight on someone, people will watch it whether they know about it or not. Like Criterion's good at introducing people to people you've never heard of, you know. And maybe they should do a little. Maybe you should do a Paul Williams set. And maybe they should ask us to do the, the commentary. Uh, do the commentary. <laughs> yeah, let's get the really angry political guy and the idiot who does nothing about politics doing the commentary for these politically heavy. Movies. Well, they're not actually that politically heavy. The first All one right, well, is yeah. Nunzio isn't. Be... <laughs> I mean, the revolutionary is. I mean, I don't know. And oh, I wouldn't I... describe it that. I would just say they're two people who love film <laughs> and come at it from different. You know, I think. <laughs> I think our conversation about the November Men has been 
very del- you know delightful. I, it, yeah, yeah. You don't have to. <laughs> you don't have to know the. You know all of the politics of it to to like appreciate no. what it's doing cinematically. For sure. Yeah. You know, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I love JFK. I don't agree with all that stuff, but I think that's a it's a well made and Nixon, like you said, Nixon is a as a movie, great fucking movie. As it was yeah. about, you don't have to agree with it. You don't have to just, you know, <laughs> just be interested. But then read a book about Nixon and learn what Nixon was really well, I guess, like. But and I guess bringing it back, I mean, I guess the re- I mean, I don't know if I if I really differentiate morally between Oliver Stone and Aaron Sorkin. They're both very good directors, writers who know how to make the kind of movies that you get money to make. You don't get money to make a movie like The November Men. And I respect, morally, I respect a guy like Paul Williams or like Peter Bogdanovich with with Cat's Meow more than I respect the people who know how to flatter the people who can give you millions and millions of dollars. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I guess the difference I would say between the Nixon movie and the trial of the Chicago seven is just that Nixon is very well documented. And so it's not like when you see the Nixon movie, you most people have never heard. heard of yeah. Nixon never heard. So you can, there's a lot of other stuff to go by. And I, and so not to go back to that, but I think is- there's a, is there a good documentary about the Chicago 7 you can recommend people see? Or about any of the people involved? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, we both realized in the middle of this that we needed to do some more research on the trial of the Chicago 7. Because I act like I know a lot, but there's still a lot I don't know. And Brian, was yeah. you were much more honest about revealing your ignorance of it. And also diligent in checking up on some of the things that we talked yeah. about. So you gave yeah. me the assignment of watching the movie, the Chicago 10. It's an yeah. animated documentary that also features documentary footage from the police riots at the democratic convention in 1968. And it's by Brett Morgan who did the kids stays in the picture. And that's a great resource uh, to sort of connect all this together. But I have, I really want to talk with you about what are some of the things that you found out in your research on the trial of the Chicago seven since we recorded the, the one that was like, and so I just want to preface with like, I understand when people make movies that they cannot be a writer or a filmmaker and kind of change things around, which is why I don't want to try to make anything based on anything real, because I would not do that because my brain would be like, no, you must have it be accurate. And, you know, some people, you know, they stray from it. And I think it's, you know, maybe don't make a movie based on a true story if you have a vivid imagination. <laughs> but <laughs> but I think the the main one, the one, the one that shocked me the most that was kind of offensive was that the pacifist fellow. What, what's David Dellinger. David Dellinger, like in the movie... He gets so worked up at one point because cops are trying to calm him down because he's speaking his word against the judge that he punches one of the cops and then Im- immediately he's like, oh God, I can't believe I punched him. That never happened. <laughs> and I get, I get like, okay, that's a good dramatic you know, character. Oh, how interesting the pacifist punched a man. Uh, but at the same time, like this is about a real guy who devoted his life to being a pacifist so like what is i don't think he's around anymore but like what would he think if he knew that like in a movie he's portraying as punching somebody 
Uh, that was my favorite part of the last temptation of Christ is when Jesus just punched everybody. <laughs> oh, wait, that's not in the movie. <laughs> but uh, that was crazy. Um, and then you, t- you told me that uh, there was more interesting people that even spoke at the trial, which would have made an even more fun, interesting movie, like the reality itself. Yeah, so I'm going to post the transcripts from the trial on our website but just looking at some of the defense witnesses, we've got Phil Oakes, Allen Ginsberg, Dick Gregory, Timothy Leary, uh, Judy Collins, Norman Mailer, and Jesse Jackson. <laughs> that's a that, see. That's a more fun. That's even just a fun montage. If you want to try to make your Chicago Seven movie fun, which seemed like they were kind of trying to do in a way, then like just lean really lean into it and have like a three minute montage of people you know. Who doesn't want to see Daryl Hammond do a Norman Mailer impersonation? You know, like, why not? <laughs> let's, let's do that. Uh, why? Yeah. And, like, there's more, like you said, there's more comedy in the reality of it. When you read, like, the things that Abby Hoffman did or said, like, there's just more. It is a more interesting thing. And so, you having watched the Chicago 10, which I have not seen yet... Is it? Does it have more of that in there? Does it more tr- to the truth? Yeah, it's definitely... They're both films. Like I said, it, it should be a miniseries. If you really wanted to do this justice, it needs a deep dive. Both of them are about two-hour movies, so there's only so much they can do. The difference is that you, can, you really get the sense that the makers of the Chicago 10 sympathize with the defendants and want to tell their story, and the maker of Trial of the Chicago 7 is hostile to the attitudes of the defendants and is more interested in making propaganda for our time than telling that story. Like I said, I mean, I, I, I said that Sorkin says, I want everyone to feel the way they felt when Joe Biden was elected. And just this week, Joe Biden just fired five of his staff members who admitted to using marijuana in the past. I think that's something that Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin (laughs) would have been not would not have, you know, they wouldn't have celebrated that. And that's like the smallest little thing. But it's just like we have a president who's still relitigating. Like if you told Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin that in 2020, marijuana would be legal in half of the United States and we would elect a Democrat who would still be trying to put people in prison for it and keep them from being employed for it. I think they would be offended. And so that just, this is not about Joe Biden. It's about uh, Aaron Sorkin and the difference between his attitude towards the trial of the Chicago seven, which is to use them to do propaganda for the democratic party. And they were in Chicago protesting the democratic party for being the hypocrites that they are continuing to be today. And so it's not about my political beliefs or your political beliefs. It's just about their political beliefs and history. And so, yes, in terms yeah. of, I don't think either of them tells the story as well as you could. I think Chicago 10 yeah. does it better. And I think, going back to what you said, if you're going to make a story about history, of course you're going to take liberties. Of course you're going to change things. But I think at the base of it, if you're going to tell a historical story about a historical person, your film should represent their aspirations and their 
act, their actual actions as opposed to trying to, after they're gone, use them to make your own political point, which is at odds with what the political point they were making at the time. <laughs> like, I think of Sorkin as a political filmmaker who, and that's where he, I, I take issue with him. But if it was, you know, just some sort of gonzo, like whoever made, uh, like, I, I don't know, like, does does Terry Gilliam, he doesn't really seem to have a, he has a general attitude about everything, but I don't feel like he has a particular political axe to grind. Like, yeah. I feel like if he had made this movie like he made Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, <laughs> I think it would be a way, like, that would have been well, much tr- truer to the feeling uh, of it. I mean, and and I will say, even though we're done talking about it, I did think that the the Chicago 7 movie was a poorly directed movie and a poorly shot movie. Like, I liked the script and the acting, but, like, it felt just like a television show. It was just a lot of wide shot close-up. There wasn't quite the artistry there that you would get from... I mean, like... I mean, that was the thing going for Mank, was that it was a really great-looking movie. It was a poorly written movie. So maybe you get the cinematographer... Maybe they should have switched. Maybe Sorkin should have made Mank and David Fincher should have made... <laughs> The Trial of the Chicago 7. Then maybe those movies would have worked. Perhaps. I don't know. Maybe those two guys should work together on more films. That was a guy. I love The Social Network. Uh, it's yeah. a great movie. <laughs> Never thought I'd be interested in a movie about Facebook. I think yeah. that I'm not even on. But uh, yeah. But now they're, they're yeah. rivals at the 2021 Oscars. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well... <laughs> Today we, I guess we should just we're 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 seeking out of this. So first of all, bravo to Paul Williams, November men, the November men. Good job, good job, sir. <laughs> um, and if you've and actually, almost as much. If you are listening to this and you have found a copy of this and are able to watch it, bravo to you too. <laughs> good job. Yeah, that's an, some intrepid uh, video hunting. You may you found. I can't believe you found double exposure. Wow. Okay, you send me the link. I'll post the link when we when we post this. God, I wonder if there's some place you you know. Anyway, I found a video. You can find video copies for sale online. That we're we're recording this on the day that the Oscar nominations were announced. We're going to be doing an episode about the Oscars with your director's wall partner aj gonzalez mm-hmm. and you won't be on that episode so do you want to do you have any <laughs> do you have any thoughts about the oscars yeah uh, I'll, I'll keep it short i'll keep the rant short uh you know my rant on the oscars is shorter than the raspberries because i actually loathe and hate the Razzies. i'm impartial to the oscars because i am i mean i love movies i love the history of movies i love the spectacle of it and ever since i was a kid I've watched the Oscars like since I can remember. It's like the Super Bowl for movie fans. And just like with the Super Bowl, I don't really care who wins or doesn't win. It's not the point to me. It's just fun watching the football game being played. And with the Oscars, it's fun to see like the glitz and glamour of Hollywood or Hollywood pretending that they have it. Or like this year, it'll certainly be interesting because it's, you know, during quarantine still. Um, and I will say that even though... I don't like a lot of the movies nominated any year in this year. It is cool that this year is more because we had a year without superheroes and without big Hollywood movies. This is like the most diverse bunch of nominees they've ever had, which is great. 
that it actually is like, oh, these all these different people. We have two women and I'm for director, like a lot of people of color for actor. It's not just the same big stars. It's not like all these big movies. Uh, it's actually a bunch of weird little things made by people kind of who aren't necessarily, you know, getting lots and lots of money to make movies, uh, enough money to make a movie. But like, I like, I respect that of this year, that it's exciting in that it's not just your obvious, you know, big Oscar Beatty stuff. Except for Mank and the Trial of the Chicago 7. Those are the only two movies that are the obvious, like, okay, yeah, you're, you're the Oscar movie that... For some reason, everybody loves, but the other movies like it, in the running, like are very the ones you ha- I haven't seen like look interesting. Like, oh, these look like movies that like, aren't normally up for these things, and I really hope that one of those wins over sort of the bigger, you know, movies that you know, had Netflix money or whatever. I hope it goes to some of the smaller ones. Um. But I like yeah, the make, I like make your favorite film got the uh, most nominees. And you know, Ten nominees. My prediction nominations. It'll lose all of them except for cinematography. That's my prediction. I hope Mank wins just so people will watch Citizen Kane. Like so anyone out there is like, <laughs> what is this garbage movie? What is this movie about? Oh, that's a real movie. I'll watch that. And then you see this great movie and you're like, oh my like was Citizen Kane even on Netflix? Did you even have the option to watch it? With make, I don't think so. I don't think it was on there. I might be wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. But I seen the call. Like I couldn't find it. Uh, I own it. I don't need Netflix for it. But uh, that's my my hope with anything that wins that's bad, is that it draws people into the good that is behind it or next to it. You know, like it's just that they, that they like it so much or hate it so much that they reach to the side and find the the thing they should have been the whole time. So. Have you seen any of the, other than Mank and the Trial of the Chicago 7, have you seen any of the Oscar nominees? No, I was going to, and Mank was so bad that I gave up and decided <laughs> not to. I should have watched that one last. Because uh, like they all yeah. look, the other ones actually look really good. It's just like I get so burnt out so quickly and I'd rather watch movies that get no nominate. Like, I'm the guy who looks at the Razzies and say, okay, these are probably the movies that I should be watching. So... I'm more excited about what they think. That's a whole other tangent for another day, maybe. Well, not entirely, because I just want to say that is a good setup to talk about what we're going to be doing the week after the Oscars. We are going to be doing our own awards ceremony. It is called the Noscars. <laughs> and the, the, basically, if you were nominated for an Oscar, you are not, your film is nope. not eligible. So sorry to Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I'm I applaud all your nominations, but we won't be able to be doing we won't be able to be doing you or Nomad Land or Promising Young Woman. But if you were nominated for a Razzie, you take you know you're almost you're automatically in the running. You want to tell <laughs> us who was nominated for Razzies this year? Uh, you know, uh, I'll it. I'm gonna not go on a rant here because I. It makes me mad. But of course, our our friend Adam Sandler being picked on yet again and the way he talks for Hubie Halloween. Yeah. Worst, uh, like it was the like worst remake because they said it was a remake of Ernest Scared Stupid, which I guess is them attempting to be funny or stupid. I don't know. But that's dumb. Uh, Glenn Close uh, for uh, Hillbilly Elegy. <laughs> like, also uh, nominated for Best Actor in uh, the Oscars. Like, what do we do with the Noscars? 
if you were nominated for a Raspberry and an Oscar. It, what is she nominated for an Oscar for? Same movie? Best Actress. Really? Uh, uh, best Supporting Actress in, in Hillbilly Elegy. Yeah. I mean, I think she was up for a Razzie, but either way, like, that movie is. And yeah. Yeah, they're just, they like to, they like to pick on the, the, the like, and also, like, the main beef I have this year is that, like, this is a year that was very hard to get movies shown. The movie theaters shut down. People lost their jobs that worked on movies. Is this a good time to kick movies when they're down? Like, really, Razzies? Is that what you want to well, do? Like... Hey, hey, <laughs> Brian, you're, you're forgetting how hard it is. I mean, COVID hit the Razzies, too. You know, they it's it's hard for them to have uninformed and cruel opinions about so few films. They don't have as many films to pick on this year. They don't have as many actors to be insulting towards or audiences to encourage to be stupid. They, you know, it's have some sympathy, man. The raspberries. It's tough. It's tough on them. And the actual nominee for Adam Sandler is listed as. Adam Sandler and his grating simpleton voice. <laughs> real you know what hot, I real hot take that they. You know what? I, this is when this is a job for Duggo. <laughs> and they nominated for many places the wrong Missy, which I'm nominating for an Oscar because that was one of my favorite movies of last year. The, the David Spade comedy. Very, very good. I mean, even if I saw any of these movies, I didn't like them. I think that, like, making a worst of list and worst, it's just, I, it's, I hate it. I am not a fan. I never am. I'm, 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 I'm totally with you. Yeah. That's why and, we have you know this what? podcast. And I'm fine if someone wants to defend Mank and say it's great. I'll, I'll respect your opinion. I won't agree with you, but. <laughs> and I would never make a list of, like, Mank is the worst of the year. No, no. It's well, not, I mean, it's not worth it. It's like, I don't care. It just didn't work for me. Here's, yeah. I know what you would do if someone told you they liked Mank. You'd say, watch the cool. cat's meow. Have you seen the cat's meow? <laughs> if you like that, you should check this out. Yeah, you because go. Because that's, that's a, a yes and way to approach it. You don't have to like, you can't keep them from having seen a movie they already saw. Yeah. And if they liked it and it brought them joy, yeah. that's cool. But yeah. maybe you can turn that person on to... Something else. Oh, you liked The Trial of the Chicago 7? Well, maybe you should watch The November Men. See who Tom Hayden really was. Hear what he really said. Anyway, let's go back to the Noscars. So just being nominated for a, Raz, for a Razzie gives you priority yes, as a nominee. I, yeah. Being nominated for an Oscar uh, disqualifies you, your film. So sorry for, the, for those. And then I... I did get a kind of excited when I read the Oscar nominations this year in a way that I haven't for many, many years, because every film that I, because the films that I want to nominate and the the performances that I want to, to acknowledge in our Oscar ceremony, uh, I'm kind of rooting for them. Not, and at this point, I'm looking for the films I love not to get nominated <laughs> so that we can really... <laughs> celebrate a film like the kid detective i mean first cow like first cow is like a film that was winning awards and i was kind of afraid that it was going to get an oscar nomination and i wouldn't be able to celebrate it but yeah. you'll be able to talk about first cow at the oscars uh, there's so many good films my, everything that was on my list of best movies of the year except for one was not nominated for an oscar borat 
Borat was the only movie that I was like, I, I knew, like that I movie. I know you. I know and, you. <laughs> and that was now for an Oscar, and I'm glad it is. But like that was the only one that was on my breakdown of best of 2020 that made it to Oscar. Everything else did not. And I'm excited to push them upon the public with our first annual Noscars. So you weren't... Uh... What about the what about the animated features? Did you have any animated features on your list? I don't really like animated things. <laughs> oh, okay, so well, you won't be nominated. Like, Waking like... Life? Do you like Waking Life? Uh, not really. Oh man, I'm so glad you weren't on our episode about Vanilla Sky. <laughs> oh, sorry that you haven't heard that episode, listeners. That'll be coming out. I, I in, like in the future. Uh, you know, I like Looney Tunes and. <laughs> You know, The Simpsons when it was good, like forty five years ago. But uh, you have a very, you have uh, a very refined palate. You don't, you don't, <laughs> you don't mess with childish, childish. No, film, I, I com, do, you know. I do like the Pixar movies. I am excited to watch Soul, and I am going to watch Soul this month. I just haven't had time, so that I will. I to say I don't like animated movies is a bit of me just being a troll. But uh, I'm not drawn to them usually because I'm more excited about movies with people in it and trying to figure out how they made it. Whereas, you know. What do you feel about a movie entirely with cats? <laughs> now that I'm very, I we need to find that movie. <laughs> yes, like we do you, need to find if that you, movie. If we get to interview Paul Williams for this episode, you have to get him to send us a copy of that movie. A link or something like I want to see that sounds like something I need to see. Yeah. yeah. And who knows? Maybe it's really crazy and subversive and about something in 2017. that is too dangerous it's, to say. So you had to put it in a weird cat movie. It's it's a, a, at this point I am bought in with Paul Williams. <laughs> like that's a film that I wouldn't like nothing about that film excites me. But the idea that the guy who made all of these other films made that. I'm like, okay, yeah, I want to see. Yeah. I up. really want to see what he does and and how he does it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we may be circling back and doing another episode about a Paul Williams movie after watching that movie. Hey, a whole month, a whole month of, of Paul Williams. It's, yeah, that's w- William Sanity. What what, <laughs> what what do we call? That doesn't quite work yet, but you know we'll figure it out. <laughs> Have you ever thought about being a sex worker? Or robbing a bank? Or maybe you're bored and thinking of climbing Mount Everest on a whim. If you've got a bad idea, we've got good advice from the people who've been there. Hi, I'm Marty Caproni. And I'm Joe Garrix. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Good Advice for Bad Ideas, right here on the Paperhouse Podcast Network. It will be interesting. We promise. Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe by Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform. So this is the part of the show where we usually tell you about our other podcasts, but considering how long this episode is, why don't we just keep it brief? You have another podcast, right? Yes, I have a show called The Director's Wall with AJ Gonzalez. We're going through every couple of movie. It's very exciting. Excellent. It's a wonderful podcast. You can hear about it on other episodes of ours. Check it out. It's I'm it's one of my favorite movie podcasts. I have a podcast called The Radio 8 Ball Show where we answer questions by picking songs at random and interpreting them like musical tarot cards. 
You can find that and a link to that in our show notes. And uh, the reason we're, we're hustling through this is because we are about to dive into a really, really, uh, I don't know, special feature to this podcast. I was able to track down James Andronica from The November Men, and we spent about eight hours over two <laughs> separate phone calls recording a wow. super in-depth interview Wow. And uh, you spend that much time with someone, and if they're a sweet person at all, which James definitely is, you just become friends. And um, it's been, I don't know, it's been a real treat getting to know this guy. And he has so much great information. We were so on the money, right? Uh, right? About some of the things about this film. Mm hmm. You know, yeah, like for sure, it's connection. It has a very clear connection to the trial of the Chicago Seven, which you'll hear about. Yeah, you've listened to the the penultimate cut of <laughs> the interview, <laughs> coming out about two and a half hours. Yeah. Anything you want to tell the listeners before we dive into it? Yeah. Um. So I know this is long. So if it seems like it's a bit much, pause it and just come back tomorrow. But please continue. Like it's such a great interview is such an interesting person and it really adds uh, so much to the movie too and definitely like if you haven't seen the movie yet now that we've talked about it watch the movie come back listen to this interview he also talks a bit about nunzio and so maybe watch that is that is there an easy way to watch that movie anywhere the only version i can find is on youtube you could find it just do a search right. it's not a great print i really really hope that at some point this film gets a real re-release because it should, because it's got an amazing cast and yeah. it's a, you know, it's a piece of film history. Yeah. But uh, no, just enjoy this interview. It's very, very fascinating and it adds so many more interesting tales to this crazy movie. Yeah. And next week we're going to be doing an episode about the Oscars pro and con with your co-host from the director's wall aj gonzalez in your absence and yeah. i think that one came out really great yeah he's like he's the oscar maniac like he knows everything about it inside and out and just he has a very interesting point of view i think about the academy awards one that's different than the ones you normally read about it actually is interesting whether you find the oscars boring or not listening to him and you talk about it was is is very fun Excellent. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And I hope you'll all tune into it next week. And until next time, as Paul Williams and James Andronica know so well, the world, my friends, is wrong. And wherever you are, it's probably wrong about you. If you go back to where I began and you think of those three deaths and what they meant to your life, and how difficult it is to believe that all three were the work of three separated, isolated, lone gunmen. But even if you accept that, think of it as the coming of tragedy into American life for the first time since the 19th century Civil War. Uh, think of what that tragedy means in terms of our own diminishment. Uh, my friend Jack Newfield, who was with me 
during the time of the killing of Robert Kennedy said, uh, with that death, our generation became might of men's. Doomed forever to live, never to know what might have been of our lives and of our country's lives. We can debate whether John Kennedy would have gotten out of Vietnam. I happen to think he would have. We can debate whether Robert Kennedy would have expanded a nonviolent struggle to include poverty as well as civil rights. I think he would have. We can debate whether Robert Kennedy might have been the nominee and would have defeated Richard Nixon in 1968. I happen to think that he would have. But it doesn't matter what you think. These are our projections based on our best analysis, based on all we know. It doesn't matter what conclusion we draw about the hypothetical. What we do know is that our lives were wrecked. And to think that three deranged killers One dead, two in jail, are responsible for this wreckage. It simply makes no sense to me. And I know it makes no sense to most people in this country. There's no political left left in American politics. The right determines who will live in the White House. The left determines who will be head of the English department. Like Lyndon Johnson said, you don't have to worry about the left. They'll never pick up a gun. It's the right you have to worry about. If they don't get what they want, they'll blow your fucking head off. The only people approved for listening to in this society are millionaires. Is everything okay? Yeah. Yes, yes, wonderful. Thanks. I know who you are. I, I've seen you on a talk show. Well, it's always good to hear from the younger generation. You're a great filmmaker. My God, they must really, we should put this in the, in the tape though, this part I want to talk about is the fact that if we interpret the way that we're going to uh, assimilate everything that, you know, we've left behind here, so to speak, and then we go to the new world, we have to completely deconstruct our thoughts, uh, our, our process, because it's impossible for us to comprehend that the second you go up there, you not only know what happened now, you know what happened in the past, the past, past, past is enough to scare you, past, 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 how far are we gonna go back? Uh, and then forward in this life that you just left is absolutely incomprehensible. How could you possibly imagine from the moment that you left that all these things are gonna happen and some so, so wonderful and some so tragic, how can you ingest them? Uh, it's impossible uh, to take them all in at once and and uh, and uh, what's the word to, uh, I'm trying to look for a word to, to assimilate it all, I guess. How, how can we understand it uh, even, we can't. We don't have that capacity. So that that says that we have to go to some other level of understanding and interpreting uh, that we simply have no idea um, what that is like. You know, there's just uh, 
Uh, and so, yeah, I don't think that time is linear. And I think that just making that transition into a different format of time is something that we just can't understand, you know, but, but I believe it. I feel like this is a great place to jump in. So let's do this. Paul Williams was fascinated with my world from the past. So his attraction to me, uh, uh, made this great artistic uh, um, duo, <laughs> you know, because uh, we just, uh, I was fascinated with the world that he had, you know, this whole Harvard and everything, and uh, something I, I was in awe of. But at the same time, he felt my world was the real world and uh, all of that kind of stuff. So. On and shooting Nunzio, he was actually able to go back to what was left, you know, as dynamics change our demographics and all kinds of things happen, you know. Um, this was the last shred of uh, a physical remnant of what I grew up in because it, it was changing, like I said. And uh, this was, there was still enough there to see what I had been talking about in my world of growing up. So, cause we actually shot Nunzio on the location, swinging, uh, David Provost swinging around that flagpole with the Nunzio, uh, we had it, that's another story that we had to change it to end. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was Superman originally, but at the same time they were doing Superman. This was a fantasy of a guy who had a fantasy he was Superman. That's what I did as a child. I put on that same long johns and cape and made a superman soup and swung around that flagpole that flagpole was the school that i went to that my mother went to uh before me and the one that i walked around the corner from the, the uh, to uh, wait for my mother at the theater so it was shot everything right on location and uh we uh, uh so paul got to see a lot of that world which he was fascinated with because you know you also get involved with those people a little bit too you have to in order if you want to shoot in that uh neighborhood you know it's unions and and organized crime and all that stuff so uh so he was getting to see that that world and uh you know they did me favors um where you know they can they can shake down a production you know make it hard to you know this will cost you that this will cost you this and of course everybody was rooting for me and so they did a lot of uh, a lot of favors for us and uh uh so as i was saying anyway paul was fascinated with my world which i thought i says there's nothing to be fascinated about but uh, I was fascinated with his, and he thought his was a bore. So I don't know. <laughs> well, that's how that's that is the the source of great collaborations. How would you describe Nunzio to someone who hasn't seen it? I would describe it probably as a slice of life growing up in a predominantly Jewish and Italian working class. That's that's what it was. It was a uh, a soup mixed in that way, and. Uh, I'll tell you, I, I I yearn for the beauty of those times and those people. I really just, uh, you know, there was such color to all of them um, that uh, 
Well, it was an attractive world in one way very much. I, I didn't want to make it sound like it was a world full of crime. It was a world full of hardworking people and um, uh, that for the most part were just uh, all wonderful. And uh, and it was a, a good experience to, to grow up in. I yearned for something like either Paul would have had pushing him in that direction. Uh, my parents certainly would have wanted me to do that. Uh, but, you know, there was no college education in my family, although my father was a very intelligent man. So was my mother. But, you know, they didn't have that exposure uh, as, um, you know, as Paul would have had. And or even a direction that, say, uh, Bobby De Niro had, you know, with his mother pushing him toward acting, finding some way, something you would be interested in. Instead, I was not interested in any of the, you know, traditional academics and didn't find motive in the way to say, well, if you want to have a life, if you want to have a life of this education, you got to start pushing yourself here. Well, that didn't attract me at that time, you know, so. I don't know how anyone would have changed anything um, in a better direction for me at the time, but anyway, it was what it was. So your your question, <laughs> which I'm sorry I elaborated on so long, is no. how would I describe Nunzio to someone who has not seen it? Uh, I would say it's a reflection of that milieu. Uh, that is. Uh, regular class working people with uh, simple values and um, uh, but a, a heartwarming story uh, because uh, uh, just of its its nature um, I wouldn't say that it was uh, well we haven't we haven't mentioned its star yet David Proval you wrote this for him yes I did and people may not be aware that at the time, and this is like the mid seventies, seventy five, seventy six, seventy seven. That time, that time um, period. It was actually actually written in seventy seven. Uh, let me see. It would have been early seventy seven. And at that time, David Proval was definitely a a young star on the rise. On the rise, David Proval had an acting class in L.A. This was after he was uh, he got some heat from Mean Streets, uh, which is the Marty Scorsese debut as well. I mean, not really his debut. He did something else and he started to get some attention. And uh, so anyway, then, he, uh, then David naturally was grabbing some of this heat as well. And uh, we were looking he was looking for projects. Uh, and uh, he had this acting class where I was introduced to him through other actors that I knew. One was a former a roommate of mine. And uh, it, just, it was just that kind of, you know, casual stuff. And, oh, he's got an acting class. And I didn't really, I went to one or two, something like that. But the main thing is what happened is, a turning point was David Proval was looking for a place to live with his two children and wife. Uh, and it was kind of an immediate thing. He didn't get along with his landlord or something and had to just get out of there. And ironically, he only lived, I would say, anywhere from five, seven blocks away from me. And uh, 
I was writing and writing. And when I got to meet David, immediately we had started talking about the old neighborhood. And when I say the old neighborhood, he was from Brooklyn as well. Although the other end of Brooklyn, and we didn't know each other from there. But our stories were, backgrounds were so similar in many ways that we understood uh, that it was something that, uh, you know, just it bound us very quickly. And uh, so we talked about, it came up to a point at somewhere, I don't remember how, that we could, we should play brothers in something. We could be brothers in something. And I started talking to him about uh, a lot of the, crazy fantasies that I uh, had as a kid growing up and not not with the intention of a screenplay but we were just talking about different things we did and he was telling me about his his background and anyway this the part about Nunzio I used to say you could play a retarded guy when you just relax your face like this you know it's and it was kind of, kind of like a what do you call uh, an insulting compliment if if I can term such a phrase, because I said that you, you would be perfect to just play uh, uh, one who's mentally uh, capable of taking care of himself. And that's about it. And I knew such a person in my neighborhood and he delivered groceries and the whole thing. I was the one that swung around a flagpole with a Superman suit on. And uh, I will interject right here, realizing that I'm digressing just a little bit, but we'll come right back. I just want to tell you about there should have been an S on Nunzio's suit instead of an N. What happened was at the same time, the Sulkin brothers were producing another film that we all heard of called Superman. And uh, they would sue at the drop of a hat. And uh, right away, the legal department, this is why we're already in pre-production in New York. They call up and they say, oh, we can't. We have to stop this movie. Um, no, excuse me. We weren't, we weren't in New York because we were still in uh, Los Angeles. And I was sitting in the office in the Black Tower of uh, uh, Universal Studios with Jennings Lang. And he said, yeah, I just got to memo here from the legal department that just said that we can't make the movie. This was uh, after we were go and everything and we come up to this meeting, you know, bombshell dropped on us and you can't make this movie because it's too much like uh, Superman. You got, I says, what are you talking about? This is satire. Says, yeah, I know. Don't worry about it. And he sits there and he's, uh, he gets his little, uh, Maggie calls her and she gets him his little two fingers of scotch. And he sits there and that's his afternoon break. And he, he took a sip of that. He gets on the phone and he calls the legal department. He says, listen, we don't hire geniuses around here. And he sounded just like I do now, his voice aged. <laughs> just that same gravelly thing. Listen, we don't hire geniuses around here to tell us how we can't make a movie. We hire geniuses to tell us how we can make a movie. Now you call me back in five minutes and let me know how we can make this movie. Boom. And he hangs up. <laughs> That's the end of that. Ah, yeah. Oh, and, uh, I love that. So the guy does come back and we said, you know, the symbol was the main thing. And mentioning Clark Kent was copyright. And so I said, all right, 
I'll change the symbol to an N. Okay, great. Um, and I wouldn't mention Clark Kent. I recall, it, you know, when we talked about putting the suit in the cleaners, I couldn't say Clark Kent put a suit in the cleaners. You know, uh, I said, you know, all the superheroes, they had, to, they had to put the suit in the cleaners once in a while, you know. So that was how we got around all their panic. You know, they're always just looking to protect themselves. The, the lawyers here, they're not going to stick their neck out for... So anyway, uh, that was the end of that. And that's why Nunzi was wearing an egg. Now I'll get right back on track. So that's great. So now you've, you've completed Nunzio. You've got a studio film with all of these actors who are in this soup of a, this new Hollywood, basically the Godfather and mean streets and also Paul Williams, who at that point is a very sort of successful, artistically well-respected director, producer of some really interesting films that are really very zeitgeisty. So you're in this this very, what seems like a very exciting and creative community of people. And what ultimately came out of it, and what I want to talk with you about, is November Men. So you finish Nunzio, and you're you're in this crew of all these these people. How do you get from that to the November Men, and what's in between? A oh, lot of TV a, work, it yeah. seems like you were doing a lot of TV work as an actor and movie work as well. Yeah, yeah, that wasn't by choice. You know, first of all, let me just correct a couple of things. Paul Williams at the time had come off this hot spell that he had around him, and. Uh, I think I mentioned this. Uh, did I? Well, we had a conversation. Here's here's what what really happened. Paul was retired, so to speak. He didn't. He wasn't in the film business anymore. At a really early age, uh, he had done all these things and then retired out to a ranch uh, right on the uh, Malibu uh, borderline. There, actually, it was Ventura County. And he had a ranch there with horses and everything and this kid. And he just uh, didn't want to do anything uh, again. And then what happened was some kind of financial need came in. I can't remember what it was. Or some other motivation. But he was then introduced to this guy, David Proval. And uh, actually, when he and David brought him the script that I had written for him, and uh, David is the one who motivated me to actually write because he said to write this thing for me. He says, I can get money for this. I'm telling you, Paul Williams has got German money. And, you know, there was a time when you went other places and you got money. But we never intended it as a studio picture. So uh, he says, and he can get us the money and we'll, uh, we'll shoot the film. So I said, okay, and I never met Paul. Good thing I didn't because there never would have been a nuncio. Um, what happened is I wrote the script and in that writing, you know, Paul would come to class. I'd stick in my head in once in a while. I didn't talk to him about anything uh, uh, around the script at all. If we were even there at the same time, you know, where we had an opportunity to talk, I really don't remember. I was in classes, uh, and I believe Paul was in some of the ones I went to. I don't remember. It's an honest uh, 
because it, it all became like one spinning ball of events. And I, I really can't decipher when one occurred, uh, whether it was simultaneous right before or right afterward. But around that time, I didn't speak to Paul at all about this. I didn't really know him. So I wrote the script. And thank God, as I said, I didn't meet him because there never would have been a nuncio. When we were, when I was all through, through David, I gave him the script and he loved it and wanted, and he brought it over to Paul, who really wasn't interested. Uh, it wasn't a genre that he was interested in. Paul was interested more in political films. Um, and this, uh, you know, struck no resemblance to a political film. So uh, he really wasn't uh, attracted to it. And uh, he too agreed it was it was episodic and it needed some kind of train that were on this train to go where he couldn't understand it. And really he was right. It was episodic until something happened. And that really all should have been, you know, somewhere earlier in the film if you were talking just plain screenplay. But what did attract Paul was me and David. Our chemistry together is what turned him on to an attractive piece of film to shoot. Our interaction, our the way we were with each other. He was fascinated with this other world that came to life whenever David and I were sitting and talking about the old days or whatever, you know, old days that we didn't actually share together, but that we shared of. And uh, so uh, that's what attracted him very much. And I remember the time when, you know, it was up in the air while he didn't, uh, David says, you know, I'll bring it to Marty if you want, we'll go to Marty. And of course, Paul kept asking, all right, so can you explain this part? So what happens, we're, we're on a train from here we're on the train. I didn't know what he meant by we're on a train. He wanted some kind of event to be, you know, layering this into structures, into acts, so that we can understand, you know, okay, now, you know, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back, you know, that kind of structure. And there was none of that to this. So at one point, we had a little bit of doubt, David and I, but then, uh, we overcame that when we saw Paul was with us and, you know, we let's call him up and tell him, Paul, we just want to let you know that any other joint ventures, because we had gone to around with his old partner again, Pressman uh, and those people and to get money. And we weren't going to do it on a low budget money, but Paul didn't know anything about any German money. So number one, it would have been a good thing that I that I didn't speak to him. It was a good thing because if I would have found out there was no money to go to in the first place, I wouldn't have been motivated, you know, because there's nothing worse than writing into a void, you know, and you don't know where you're going to go with it, what you're going to do with it. And you learn that. So I said, uh, I wouldn't have written it. Let's put it that way. So. Writing this, uh, uh, and and then his saying, well, no, I don't have any uh, German money, but I can go to and go back to Pressman, and uh, and he had some people, and they were putting together some money, 
And same time, Paul, who knew Jennings, I don't know how they started uh, talking again, because Paul, like I said, was in a retirement, really, for a couple of years. And Jennings said, hey, if you got something, why don't you come to me first? And that's the way Jennings talked, by the way. Uh, so uh, he says, okay. And he brought him this thing. And we did walk in. And first time he met me and David, Jennings Lang met me and David. Uh, he said, hey, what do you got? This looks like the junior mafia here. So not expecting what he was bringing in as filmmakers, but he was intrigued. And we did, he says, Paul says, I just like to see you do, I want them to do a scene for you from Nunzio. We weren't even prepared for this. He didn't tell us. <laughs> so we sit there and David, God bless him. I mean, one thing he could do is he could cry on a dime. And, uh, you know, we just, and, uh, not one thing he can do, he's a good actor, but the point is he could had that asset every mm -hmm. time he could bring this flavor to a scene that, you know, you normally wouldn't get. And it's essentially almost a cold reading. And so we're sitting there and we do this scene for him. And it's where, um, ironically, it was a scene, I think that wasn't, that we didn't use in the film if I remember correctly. But anyway, we did a scene and at the end, it was a sad thing and David just started crying straight down, let the tears run straight down his face. Jennings watched, he picked up his phone, he pressed the button and he went, I want you to find out how much it'll cost to shoot in New York uh, with the bop, bop, bop. Yeah, we got to find out how many days to shoot we need there. Okay, and he gave him numbers and okay, and that was it and he hung up. It was that fast, that simple that it happened. You imagine those days, I, that's why I said he was the last of the moguls <clears throat> that could do something like that. Mm -hmm. And he was that impressed with the scene that we did and he saw that this would work. And uh, that was it, he, found, he got a budget for New York and he said, all right, how much are you gonna charge me to do this? <laughs> you know, it was all this kind of stuff. How much is it gonna cost me? All right. And Paul says, oh, we could do it for a million, too. And da, da, da. back in those days, that was a figure. And uh, imagine today. But anyway, uh, so. And somewhere in the universal vaults. Yeah. A print <laughs> of this film sits just waiting for its criterion re-release. You out there, people listening? Okay. Yeah. I'd right. like to see. I'd like. To, I, I mean. There is definitely a Lalo Schifrin cult that would be into this. The fact, you oh, know, yeah. the there's definitely a. I mean, you have Joe Spinell and David Proval. Uh, that's pretty. Like both of those have their own cults of fans that are really into them. And the uh, the Andronica slash Williams cult that we are working our hardest to build up here on the World Is Wrong podcast. And I think that could be the tipping point. When when there's a, when the world realizes that this film is there, just waiting in a major company's vaults. But let's move on from there because we got to get to November Men, which is yes. what we're here okay. to discuss. So you I'll meet just tell you, Lilo. Oh. By the way, real quick, Lilo loved the song that my father wrote many years before, "Good Night, My Little One," and uh, he uh, uh, wrote the whole. He would he couldn't play music; he could hum it. And he had this professor that would write his music anyway. And so it was composed into a record. Uh, and I forgot who sang it now. 
um, I mean, for the record uh, that we did, Good Night, My Little One, blah, blah, blah. It's on the album. And Lilo called me up and he says, uh, Jimmy, you know, they, they changed my name all the time, James and Jimmy, are you using it to change? My brother uses James, my wife uses James, Jimmy. Anyway, Jimmy, uh, I'm going to just tell you something. I'm not going to change a note of this thing. Your father did a perfect job. I'm leaving it exactly the way it is on the album. And so my father was very happy to hear that when I called him up and told him. Uh, so that's my little uh, personal Lalo story. Um, but Lalo is a great guy. He's a very nice man. Um, and um, yeah, of course, I didn't even, I mean, I, I guess I did. I realized at the time, my God, you know, dun, 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 dun. Yeah, <laughs> that's him. You know, my God, right away, you know, you know, Lalo Schifrin is. So um, um, anyway, and uh, yeah, so that was that. Now you want to get on to how did November Men happen from this? Yeah. The no November Men happened, what, 20, 20 years later? It's 15, uh, 78, 88. Yeah, almost 15 years later, almost. Uh, a lot happened in between, like you said, television. Uh, careers didn't go exactly where we wanted, and uh, those those things happened. We had our own personal demons, I guess, to deal with and stuff. And we didn't get to uh, November Men was a, a rebound. Um, November Men was uh, something that after I had gone to New York with my new wife um, and uh, we stayed in New York for a year at my parents' house, that same house around the corner from the theater and across the street from the school where Nunzio was shot and all that. Came back out to California uh, really kind of just building up everything again. I had not worked in New York at all. I don't think maybe one TV show or something. And then came back, uh, you know, came back uh, uh, to make uh, films. But actually, I hadn't talked to Paul and all those years. We kind of drifted apart. And he was going with this uh, girlfriend who you know, was dying to make movies. And she said, let's make a movie. And, uh, you know, took the last of Paul's life savings to do this. And we started, we figured we could shoot it on videotape and then convert it. And we didn't know what we were really going to do, but the idea was he was do anything to please her. And so, and she was an artist that is a painter. And so he wanted to, uh, he was going to teach her how to be the DP since she had all this um, what's it, intuition for composition. Let's call it that. And she could compose her. And so in other words, she's going to be the art director as well. Uh, we were all going to be, well, you know, many hats team. It never was designed to be a big picture in any way. And we stole all the things we could without permits, without every damn thing. And some of those stories are hair raising and how we did them. Um, so how did we get to that? Okay. 
my whole interest in writing of anything was around the Kennedy assassination, but not as a researcher, not as one to find out what happened factually. In that sense, I let others do it. Everybody knows pieces. There are even more researchers that came along after, you know, like the great uh, Mark Lane, who I call the, the grandfather of it all. And uh, how all these people came into this, I have pieced together what exactly happened. I know what happened. Um, and other people have done this quite well. I didn't get involved in any of that research. But what I got an idea from was, as a writer, imagine if you could just write what you write changed everything. So that I actually said, you know, and President Kennedy is going through Dallas and da, 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 and he's now on his way to the trademark and he's now arrived at the trademark. In other words, that it didn't happen if I could change history. So everything I wanted to do was always in terms of fictional. I was not what you would call a classic Kennedy researcher, none whatsoever. It's just that I had, and it's ironic, I can't remember anything now, but incredible retention to, to piece everything together. And I'd read all the material there was on this. So when November men, how did that come along? Is Paul didn't have any particular interest in Kennedy. Paul was always a political guy. I was not in that sense at all. But I was obsessed with JFK's assassination. And um, I always talked about how that whole thing had to take place. Uh, now, at that time, I'm talking about the mechanics of it and not the real cause. That was never a part of the uh, discussion, never part of uh, motivation to, to, to write a film called The November Men. We were just writing an action film to assassinate the president at the same time, we did share this philosophy that, you know, the wrong side gets shot. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, the reason that the left will never kill the right is they won't pick up a gun. And I says, and the right will. And then Paul started getting into these uh, whole philosophical uh, discussions of himself in the past and with Abby Hoffman and all of those people and Abby Hoffman, as well as the Black Panthers, all of this, but Abby Hoffman, uh, he saw there was nobody there willing to pick up a gun. He said, that's what I saw and that's what you're right about. Um, I like Abby Hoffman hiding in the bathtub or something one time when there was some confrontation. I, I, I wish I'd give you more detail because they're so fragmented now in my mind. But, but it's it, a, actually, but just so you can get our listeners close to this. So Paul, he's a filmmaker, 
But he also has, you're saying that he's connected with Abby Hoffman and the Black Panthers. When you say connected, how do you mean? Well, actually, uh, yes, he did. Uh, he w and his wife, who happened to be with a different name, because nobody knows who owns Sears, but it's Rosenwald. And when he was at Harvard, he went into uh, Harvard as Paul Williams. He was born... I guess it's all right for me to say, Paul, huh, if you're listening, Paul Goldberg. And um, that's that's what it all is. I mean, that you know, it's a shame in times like that. Oppression is brutal. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they also changed it for other reasons, too, just when names are hard to say. Boy, let them try it today. Yeah, I Goldberg. Mean, try and get your mouth around that gold... Bird. Well, you know, not, <laughs> not to mention not to mention this guy had given him any time in the air and you know, I met him and everything. And so anyway, really we, we digress. Yeah. The the point is that he's at, at Harvard as Paul Williams and is Susan Rosenwald there as Susan Sears? No, she's there as Susan no, Rosenwald. She, she's there as, as uh, no, she's not Susan. He's she's Elizabeth. Elizabeth Susan, Rosenwald. Sorry, Susan's the one that later comes along and says, "Let's make a movie." You know, we'll get to that. Uh, yeah, so Elizabeth uh, uh, was there as Elizabeth Rosenwald, and uh, and Paul was there as Paul Williams. Neither one of them know that uh, who they. Well, there's a whole thing. Uh, Elizabeth is Jewish, and she should meet a Jewish man. She didn't know Paul was Jewish. Paul, at the other side, doesn't know that this is Sears's daughter, so he's not motivated uh, to go with her because she's Sears's daughter. She was a, he was attracted to her. So that kind of pushed obstacles out of the way when they found out, you know, Paul is Jewish and Elizabeth happens to be Elizabeth, uh, owner, the owner of Sears, you know? Uh, so uh, anyway, they get married and they think they have to share these political ideals. And uh, they did to a degree until they were, I mean, there were times they were arguing with Eldridge Cleaver when she would argue all the time. Well, why would you be any different if you got hold of uh, all this power and the blue chip stocks that you speak about and all that? Why would you behave any differently uh, if you were in power? And so there was this kind of conflicting uh, relationship. But they were hanging out with the Black Panthers and filming everything they were doing. Um, that film in itself is is lost. Paul told me there were reels and reels and reels. Imagine the treasures that they would be today. Ugh. Just putting that together. But, um, you know, Paul was with them even on the tarmac in Algiers when they were surrounded by the... Uh, police the authorities not even letting them off the plane paul was there filming them wow and they finally broke their ties with them you know warren Beatty was driving them around and so uh they were going around and doing all the filming but they had plans supposedly to blow up bridges and these uh suicide points and all this kind of stuff and when it started to get too close to the actual events, you know, Paul just said, well, this is as far as we can really go because we, we weren't that those people and we couldn't do that. 
So he gives Bobby Seal $10,000 in a bathroom someplace. And that bought him off to get out of there. And he says, look, we, we can't do this. And uh, here's 10 grand. Gave him 10 grand back in, well, what is this? The late, uh, late 60s? Yeah. That's a lot of money. And um, and uh, Elizabeth said to Paul, well, that's your money. It's not mine. And he had to tell her, look, uh, don't get too hostile with these people because if they ever found out who you were, we would be their next hostages. So um, they had to realize that. And um, thankfully, they escaped with their... Uh, with themselves intact and not hostages. So uh, that's that's what that was his political world. So he was always in, he knew Abby Hoffman. He knew those people. He was very much into that and uh, and politics. And that's what later on would make this Len Clady from uh, Variety magazine very interested in him and helping him with uh, the November Men to get it in the Sundance Film Festival, uh, which had been rejected by uh, Redford's office, Robert Redford's office. I don't think he even got involved in it. But uh, we did get in, and then like idiots got ourselves out of it. That's another story, but we'll get into that. <laughs> okay, well, this is, this is exciting. Okay, so that's great. That's a picture of when you say that, uh, that Paul Williams was a, a political guy, it's not just that he had a political political opinions. He was an activist filmmaker, and that's all well pre Nunzio. This is pre his retirement, and then we just discussed Nunzio. So, yes, then you come right. back to L.A. in the late '80s, early '90s, and you and Paul reconnect. And you're yes. saying that at the time he is uh, his girlfriend or his his partner is his is, girlfriend yeah is uh what's her, her susan susan emerson susan. and yes. i'm looking her up and so she was also the cinematographer on the november men she's she was one of the the cinematic collaborators on the team yes and correct. and you're saying it's a it was a pretty small and tight unit that that built this film it all starts with the screenplay so how did you and paul decide hey, let's let's do this. Okay. Uh, I think that, first of all, I had no knowledge of, you know, really any deep knowledge whatsoever, just a cursory kind of understanding of Chicago. And, uh, you know, I was kind of like a Ratso Rizzo, you know, like, um, <laughs> I'm serious. Like, yeah. you know, come on, come on, get a job. You? you know, it was that kind of thing, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, I could it's funny as you're talking and you're saying about Paul being uh, sort of just being attracted to your energy uh, did you ever see his film The Revolutionary of course yeah so I feel like you could be a character like I could see in his world the maker of that film you being one of these characters that John Voight the sort of ivory towered intellectual is trying to get close to in in that like uh what's what's his uh oh why am i forgetting his name the guy with the with the fabulous mustache seymour cassell oh, oh boy yeah yeah i could see you as like a seymour cassell character in williams's life 
You're, you show up in his world as a Ratso Rizzo, but with this talent as a writer. Yes. Um, well, first of all, I thank you very much for your kindness to me. You're very generous. Um, but um, yes, I am from, this was all my story in my head. We weren't trying to tell a story about the Kennedy assassination, but the energy of, we felt there were dynamics taking place there that would make a good entertaining film. And I think we were right, you know, I think it was all just inside of me, ready to pop out. And it just needed a canvas to paint on. And that's simply what happened. Uh, that canvas came along at the right time. And I was able to uh, write what just came from my heart. It just flowed, really. Uh, when I, it seems like I always think about things for a while, and then when I'm ready to write, it just flows. It just flows all the time. And I've, one time I even had a member of discussion with Paul that I said, everything I actually take to write, the time I take usually is about three months. And that's counting the incubation of what I want to do. Now, who knows before what I might have unconsciously, but mm -hmm. where I consciously pay this attention is, three months from start to finish. And we disagreed a little bit <clears throat> on some parts. And, but basically that's what I still always feel. And November men was faster. Uh, Nunzio was faster. You know, Mirage too was, was all, no, I'm going to go back to my three months, no matter what Paul says. <laughs> he sometimes says, well, I saw a little bit more here. We were involved more with that. And oh yeah, maybe, but not really. And then how about this is shorter than that, too. So and I know I'm speaking very vaguely and people have no reference to what I'm talking about. But basically, this was all stuff that was ready to pop from me. And I was fascinated with the idea that men were actually going to get together. And assassinate the president of the United States the next day. What is it like the night before? That's kind of what intrigued me. You know, do you get the same night's sleep? What do you do? Uh, you know, you're, you're, oh, sorry, honey, I gotta, I'll be back later. I have to assassinate the president. I'll be right back. I mean, it was a kind of, uh, there was an intrigue about that. And I think I remember that discussion one time with Susan and with Paul and they were finding all of this fascinating. And they said, you know, and Paul said, Jimmy, go write it. And uh, I did. And uh, we, we were shooting stuff on videotape too, as well. We shot 17 minutes. We also had Tom Hayden, which we wound up using. That was originally videotape. But we used it as videotape in, in the film, and that's how we were able to get by with it. Um, and we opened the film with it. So you filmed that footage? Yes, absolutely. Wow. Okay. That's, that's new and exciting information. So let's yeah, talk about I that did. aspect of the film okay. right now, because was that built into it from the beginning that the goal was to write a script where one of the, I guess, main special effects was that you were going to go into 
public spaces with public figures that you were talking about, including George Bush, the target of the assassination within the film, within the film in November Men, and get close to them and film that sort of Tanner 88 style. Was was that your was that the intention in the in the writing? I really have to pause here and think because I think you're making us far too intelligent. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, sort of Gonzo is... style, like you are like that's one of the hooks in the film is that you are going to places where George Bush is or where Tom Hayden is and yes, filming there with them in your movie against yes. like without their consent, I imagine. Yes, correct. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, sorry, I'm a... sorry. Well, I don't know why I'm laughing at that, because I guess it sounds really da- it sounds weird to be laughing at that. But I think that that's one of the things I love no, most about I, this film. I, I take I take no offense. Believe me, I, I, I laugh with you because it is uh, an insane uh, premise that you're going to do all this. And that's why I say I think you give us far too much intelligence that we were going to be able to do all this knowing in advance, you know, and planning this. I think what I remember being planned was, oh God, this is, I really don't, I don't want to make up things I don't remember, uh, but it's almost to that, um, how it all happened. I mean, uh, you know, what was your goal? Well, our goal was to shoot an assassination I don't know, and then we we realized we could start making things as realistic as we could. I don't know at what point we decided, you know, to make George Bush the target, other than he was in office at the time, and we knew he was no good. And um, people still don't know how no good that guy was. Um, but, uh, so he was a perfect target. We shot on videotape, uh, and at some point there, we stopped the videotape shooting and we realized, uh, we have to go to film for this. So everybody was saying that this is too good to just put on videotape. You can't do that with it and you can't do anything with it. And we said, okay, and we were going to shoot 16 millimeter. Now, were we going to include all the things that you just gave us this uh, gratuity (laughs) for? I don't don't recall it being that way. I recall it being that uh, we were just going to shoot a movie of an assassination of the president. We were going to have these characters. I don't remember at what stage it even said a movie into a movie, let alone into a third movie. Uh, The third movie, though, I did know because that's when my brother-in-law, Billy Grillo, said, yeah, but it's just a movie. And we got the idea of making it. It was a third movie. And and I know this is getting confusing, but if you watch the movie, you'll you'll uh, you'll see what I was talking about. So I knew that we were at somewhere. Uh, I never had the intention of saying, okay, then all of a sudden we're gonna go cut and it's gonna be a movie within a movie. I didn't know what that end was gonna be. I was just writing. 
And all of a sudden, I came to that point and I went, cut. And everybody thought it was brilliant, and uh, including myself. I said, wow, where did that come from? I remember distinctly because I don't know what our original ending was. I, I don't know what, uh, you know, there was no ending. In other words, it, I was developing as I was writing. That's how I mostly did uh, pretty much all of my scripts. I count on what's there underneath. Um, and I just write, I put on music and I actually participate. I become a monitor that's just watching the movie unfold. I don't, I've, I always said, I've never written anything in my life. I've composed it. And that is by putting, I put on music, the keyboard actually becomes a musical instrument for me. And uh, I, I am watching the movie and they are telling me what they say. I don't stuff anything in anybody's mouth. And they tell me what's going to happen next. And thankfully, though, over time, I've learned what Jennings was teaching me perhaps 10 years before. Jimmy, you know, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back. You know, you got when you want, he says, you, you write great characters. When you learn to write story, you're going to be a great writer. And I had no idea what he was talking about. So when did the idea to actually film this, George, like you have scenes where you were Paul, your director, who's the star of the film playing a director, is in the same room as George Bush or not even at, he's on the tarmac where the, you know, George Bush is getting off of a plane and we see him there and it's a it's all in one shot. And so that is a. Tell us about how you get the how you get that shot. Uh, you know what other question you just raised for me is how could I have possibly planned that he's going to be able to invade George Bush's space? What came first, the invasion or the writing of it? And I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to, in other words, to me, as I sit here now speaking to you, it seems that it would be a rather impossible task to sit down and write that and say, just a minute, how are we going to get next to Bush? <laughs> I don't, I think I wrote it. And I think Paul just tried to accommodate. He was an excellent producer, by the way. He really could get things done that other people look at that improvisation. Uh, well, let me explain to everyone here how Paul invaded that tarmac that you see, and it's all in one shot with George Bush. It actually happened twice in the film. He's on the same shot. Uh, he's in the same shot with George Bush. How did we do that? Well, this was early days computer, and Paul had a Macintosh. And uh, people didn't know you could make passes, <clears throat> excuse me, passes uh, at the time that you can uh, make identification. So he made up uh, a pass that he was from the press. He made one for his girlfriend. He asked for permission. So it had to be in the script. That's right. We were going to just try to get in there. 
It was, it was in the script. And he wrote to the White House with confidence that he would be able to get credentials to go in and be able to shoot, so to speak, George Bush. And uh, the, le- the White House sent back a letter denying such privilege. And but it had the heading at the top, it had the correct signature on the bottom, and it had this content in the middle telling you, sorry, permission denied. Well, with these two passes, that is on himself and on his girlfriend. And just so you, when you when you say the girlfriend, that is also that's Susan Emerson, who's also the cinematographer. So She's basically, the they're a they're a two person production team. Correct. Getting in. Okay. Right. Not not only was there no place for the character of Duggo to be there, they would if if we had had that, we would have had a problem. It's just my face. They would have was not the face that looked like it belonged in there. Ratso Rizzo is not invited to this party. Right. (laughs) Exactly. So Paul looked like he was invited to this party, and so did Susan. And they look like press people. And uh, they're wearing these. uh, And you went through three stages of security uh, to get into this where uh, President Bush is landing. So you get in the first stage and they open up your case, uh, your camera case, and they make sure that there's no hidden gun inside the camera case Uh, or in the camera itself. They actually uh, opened it without exposing film, but I forgot how they did it. And uh, they, they look in there for that purpose. And uh, the next thing was you show them your credentials. Well, the first stage they got through rather easily. There's no gun in there. Secondly, they go in and now they see their passes hanging on their chest. Um, press, I forgot from what press he made up. And that's what they were, their identification on it. And then they, he shows them the letter from the White House. And this is under chaotic conditions. There's a lot of press getting in there, a lot of checking of people and all that stuff. So Paul just took the chance and gave them the letter and says, and here's our letter so that we can go in. We got permission. The guy looks at the top. It looks very official. It's a White House letter looks down at the signature it looked very real he gave it back to him he never just never read it (laughs) so uh, he didn't read the denial part and uh paul went in and they shot uh, bush coming off the plane and then since they had a talk they had to talk about assassinating him i had written that already But there was no way for Paul to say it because Susan had to pan the camera over to Paul. And that alerted the Secret Service very much. It interested them very much as to why they were the only camera being pointed in the opposite direction of where the president was. Why, if you spent all these credentials you know all this time getting in there would you shoot away from george bush when everybody is shooting at george bush and you're turned away from him and only the reporter is standing in front of him talking so as susan emerson described it at the chicago film festival she says i saw these big 
suits, these very big chested suits staring at us, you know, and so Paul couldn't naturally couldn't talk about shooting President Bush. So what he had to do was just mouth what he was saying. And then we looped it all in. That's awesome. That's and awesome. that was the only way to do it. So I still wonder to this day what that Secret Service thought they were watching, but they never took their eyes off them. They never confronted them, though. They never said, what are you shooting? What are you doing? They just watched them. And, you know, they couldn't have breathed the wrong way without them jumping right on them. So they were just very careful in what they did. And that's how we got that scene. And uh, the second scene of George Bush was at some fundraising thing. And uh, they had a smuggle of 35 millimeter camera in there. And the news people were trying to help out Susan. Oh, where'd you get that from World War II? You know, because news people didn't carry around 35 millimeter camera anymore. And so they she brought this in and they were helping her set up lighting and every damn thing over, you know, the best focus for her and all that stuff. Because they want to help a pretty girl. And Paul is down in the front so that he's in line with George Bush. Paul actually calls me and asks me as the author, should I can go up and shake his hand for an extra 5,000, which we would throw into the budget. Should we do it? And I thought for a moment, uh, I'm still not sure if I made the right decision, but I thought, no, you wouldn't. George, uh, Arthur Gwendolyn wouldn't get that close to George Bush. Uh, he would want to be, uh, he would not want attention brought to him. And so there'd be uh, no purpose in, in his walking up to him right then. Uh, so I, I said, no, save the 5,000. Uh, and I think it could turn out to be a right decision because Paul was now directly in that shot with George Bush and he wanted to show how close he can get to him. And, uh, you know, people can argue that, well, he would have been close to shaking his hand, but I felt that the character would have been more concerned with his being made aware of in any way. Um, maybe, especially since he was, I believe he was already filmed at the airport. So, um, I forgot what my reasoning was at the time, but I said no. Well, th this actually brings me to another question that I have. So the film begins with this very ominous sort of legalese. Like, I, this is like, hey, we're about to show you something and we're going to protect our ass by saying this was all legal, you know, like which immediately sets off your... <laughs> uh, yes. It sort of like goes back to what you were saying earlier of like, you know, there's not... This isn't necessarily criminal, but there's criminality around it it's think it's considered it opens by saying hey this isn't dangerous which is the first clue that maybe something's dangerous <laughs> so right, right. in once you have this in the can and you're making this movie around it and you're on the radar of the secret service and you're making a movie about being on the radar of the secret service and you're writing this you're saying you're you're creating this as it's happening how much did you feel like the production was on the radar and was being viewed as potentially dangerous, which is what you would have to 
if you thought that someone was showing up at events with George Bush and talking about committing a federal felony. Right. So now, are you asking uh, James Andronica this, or are you asking uh, uh, James Andronica now, um, <laughs> what should I say? I don't want to say Duggo because he would have uh, not. Uh... Well, I get this. The, the fact that you have to make that distinction is one of the things that makes this film so great. But yes, I'm talking to the, I guess I'm talking to the writer and trying to get historically, looking back on it, at the time, mm. did you feel like you were being surveilled? Like you were, that what was happening to the production in the film was happening to your actual production? Um, no, I don't think we ever got that, shall I say the word paranoid, but, uh, say it. I mean, the film invites it. It's a, it, yeah, I know it is a true, true paranoid thriller. You know, I'm, yeah. st I'm paranoid talking to you. <laughs> yeah, no, I, you know, everything we did, you know, the, the, the look, the, everything we did was illegal. So we were, in that sense of getting attention to us, yes. Like for instance, the fire department. You know, you see at the end when they're racing now all, you need this big production, they're racing to go stop uh, uh, an assassination of the president. You know, they got uh, wind of it and they're racing and these cars are coming with, uh, you know, police sirens on. You know, we did that. I mean, they went over and they yelled at the assistant director. These are off-duty LAPD cops. And naturally they blame the assistant director who's in charge of the action. Um, and, instead of blaming Paul, the director, because they still want their job that they're making here, this money on the side. But at the same time, they had to stick up for what they knew was uh, illegal. They're not supposed to be there to support illegal acts. The guy that was actually driving uh, and was one of the Secret Service agents was an active sheriff's captain. And, uh, uh, you know, in Riverside County. So he was an active police captain. And he even knew that, my God, when Paul said, go, go, he knew what he was doing was cold illegal. You know, they just, all of a sudden, you see them tack on to the back of a, an emergency, a real emergency that was going on. That was unplanned, but it was big production value. And uh, the fact that, our motorcycle cops allowed that to happen, you know, shook them up a lot. Uh, Paul running all in those sequences where at the end of where you have everybody running in the streets and the camera aiming up by itself and all that. And Paul running across the street with people blowing horns at him. You know how much that would cost in real life? I mean, to do this legitimately, all that traffic would have to be yours. Yeah. You would need permits. You You know the story. So, I mean... It, it, we couldn't afford anything like that. So Paul just ran across the street. Okay. And, well, uh, actually, that brings us to, if, if you don't, well, you can, can please continue. I don't want to interrupt you. No, no. I'm just saying uh, only to answer your question that uh, were we under any kind of paranoid uh, thing about the, you know, we're under somebody's watch. Not so much. No, not politically. I cannot say that we were concerned at that point. We were more concerned with as we shot, what things would we be allowed to use in the film? Because it can't go back and reshoot again. But what things would be uh, obstacles for us to even get it released? 
you know, for people to even shy away too much. That was the only kind of real paranoia, and I use that word loosely, that we experienced. Yeah, uh, that we were normal film paranoia. Like, if we're shooting this, can we get get it out? Which is brings me to my other question. So you're doing this all guerrilla filmmaking style, which is, I, I think. Even though you can say it, you could qualify it as illegal, you could also definitely qualify it as admirable filmmaking. Yes. I would fall into the latter category in terms of how I view this. So, but it still costs money to make a movie. Yes. Whose money is this and how did, where did, where did it come from? Did Troma give you half a million dollars to make this movie? Troma's lucky, Troma's (laughs) lucky it had, if it had a half a million dollars. No, (laughs) Paul did. It was all Paul's money. That's what I'm saying. It was his entire investment uh, left to him, and he was gambling it all. It really took balls. I mean, you got you got to look at it that way because uh, here he was. If this didn't, if he didn't have this faith in it, he just gave up everything, you know. And uh, he put his money where his mouth is. Let's put it that way. Where did this nest egg come from? Well, uh, you're talking about the uh, Pressman story. Yeah. The Pressman story was this, that they had produced a film called, Paul had produced, along with Pressman, a film called Phantom of the Paradise. And there are two different Paul Williams involved with this movie. One is my friend, Paul Williams. The other is the singer, uh, Paul Williams. Um... Paul Williams as a, you know, in in SAG, you could only have one name. So as an actor, Paul in SAG is P.W. Williams. The other guy took Paul Williams, the songwriter, especially since they both participated in the same movie. One was Paul Williams, the producer. He could call himself whatever he wanted. He should have called himself Paul Goldberg. But anyway, he called himself Paul Williams uh, as the producer, and it confused everyone, and it confused the IMDb that he also acted in it, and the other, the songwriter also produced it. It was a, just a, a big mess. But anyway, uh, to make a long story short with that, uh, there was Brian De Palma, and Brian De Palma took a script, I believe, that he had written. But it was owned by 20, I, I, I wish I could be clear on this. It was owned by 20th Century, I believe. And then they went from 20th Century, I think, to Universal. Or it was the other way around. I'm not sure of these, this part, but I'll tell you the end result. The end result was Brian De Palma just Xeroxed the script. He didn't change anything. Uh, as Paul said, he, down to the commas. He just uh, Xerox that and used that script that they shot. And they were going to get all this money. They were celebrating the sale to oh, either Universal or 20th Century. That can be looked up. Uh, I didn't have enough interest to look it up. But when he told me at the time, it was clear. And that was many years ago. So that's what I'm going off of. And he said to me, uh, they thought that they had all this money to celebrate. And instead... Paul uh, finds out that, uh, well, no, there's a lawsuit uh, because they say, thank you very much. We own this. This is our script. And uh, I don't remember which studio, but he said, uh, so that was the end of that. And 
Paul says, well, I'm not worried because we got E&O. And E&O is errors and omission insurance, uh, which would cover something like this. And uh, they, would, they would pay for it. But Ed Pressman announces, I'm sorry to tell you this, but I forgot to pay the last premium. So the insurance expired. And so that was the end of everything. So Paul just kind of uh, reclused himself into the, his ranch, which I guess he had already owned. Where did he get the 500000 I forgot where. I know part of it came from, I hate to mention this, this is a rather uh, ugly world when you look at it. Rich people, they behave so, and this is going to be rich for you, so you're going to love it. But rich people are different than we are in terms of, like, I remember I used to ask Paul, so you own, you own Sears and stuff like that. Uh, your family owns Sears now. Uh, did you get free washing machines? And he laughed at it because he says, rich people don't do their laundry. I says, oh, right. Uh, and so this was our relationship. This is what he loved about, you know, this rich kind of exchange of worlds. And, uh, well, one of the things that rich people do is they assume right away, you're going to have a mistress. And they don't want that interfering with your family life. You keep your mistress happy. You give her an apartment and she's kept there. And that's what you have. I feel if you're one of these womanizers, you're more than one anyway, if you're somebody like that. What makes you think you'd be content with one girlfriend, you know? But that's how they reason. You got a mistress on the side, a mistress that becomes as, uh, as important to you as, and permanent, it seems, as your marriage. But they keep it on the side. And the father gave him $100,000 for that purpose. Now, Paul was not somebody to go running around on his wife. So he still had that money. When the time came for their divorce, you had, uh, I don't know, Schnuckner, Muckner, and Schnuckner to come down the attorneys. They had Schmuckner himself jump in the cab with the papers because Paul said, oh, I don't want anything. <laughs> so they said, before this guy changes his mind, the head guy that probably didn't get in the cab in 20 years, you know, jumps into the cab and races down to Paul to have him sign what he said. Because Paul felt he already had the money that the father-in-law gave him. He didn't want to leave on bad terms. He liked uh, Elizabeth. He was heartbroken that she decided to leave him. Elizabeth later on always wished that Paul was her second husband, that she had grown a lot, you know, that kind of thing. Um, of course, she had grown a lot. And, uh, you know, he once asked her for money for a movie. And she uh, she says, you know, if there's anything you need, because he didn't ask for anything. He could have held them up for whatever he wanted, you know, to get a divorce. And he says, I don't want anything. You know, Paul's that kind of guy. He wasn't, uh, you know, what's the word? Uh, he wasn't that mercenary. So he uh, just said, no, I don't, I don't want anything. And he already had money. So that was part of it. I don't know where the rest was from. I know that what he had was about 500,000. May have been from films or something he had saved. But uh, she once asked, he once asked her, she said, if there's ever anything you need, 
It's a funny story. He says, if there's ever anything you need, you just call me up. Okay. Years later, he's trying to get a movie made. And he calls her up and he says, I know where I can get some money. And he calls up and he asks her for money for a movie. And she's all, well, we're not in the retail business uh, anymore. And he says, retail? He says, you told me if ever I needed help. I do need help now I, I, in this one spot. I need money here. And uh, she says, well, I meant like if your kid got hit by a truck or something. And he says, I got Blue Cross. <laughs> so, so, you know, anyway, she never gave him any money for that. But I understand later on, even after I had not seen him anymore in this uh in the later years, he didn't need a bad hip operation and he didn't have any money or insurance for it. And she did pay for the whole thing for him. So, you know, she did. I mean, life is full of, you know, you, you get fucked by friends and you get helped by friends. And sometimes they're the same people. Who knows, you know? So the production team on The November Men, we've got you and Paul and Susan Emerson, mm-hmm. and then there's Rod Ellis, who plays the... Uh, Undercover Secret Service, yeah. Yeah, and he's listed as a... He's an actor, and in some... What I find is some some of the... My, my favorite... At least one of my favorite scenes in the film, when he reveals that he... When we find out that he's a cop, when he's trying to buy a hot dog. When he's talking about what? The, the, when he... The, when, he's, when he's trying to buy a hot not? dog, and is the... Yeah, his, right badge falls out that whole scene i think is great yeah that guy by the way came up with his own line is would you like a hand he really lost both his hands you know and uh, that wasn't a prop and i just met him and i put him in the movie and uh, he's the one that said you want to end with that you know <laughs> it was uh that was generous of him to say but uh anyway uh yeah uh, rod had never acted before or after to my knowledge but um he was in the first test that we did. He did such a good job. We had him just as a stand-in to do these lines at the time. And before it got bigger than it was, you know, we weren't planning to spend that much. And uh, so uh, then Rod wound up being in the movie. But uh, yeah, so he really didn't uh, contribute much other than we had his sound studio to work in, in Hollywood and cast people and all that. And um, so, um, that so he was wasn't he was he was more a producer in terms of allowing you to use his space. That's than right. That's right. a producer in the sense of no, being active he, on the production. He's the guy who forgot the lights the night we had to do the scene <laughs> in the cave on and Griffith Park, and we were locked in there for the weekend, literally, because you couldn't allow anybody in or out, and um, there was some kind of pass or something you needed, and. Paul called up Stephen Eckleberry, who had a truck full of lights because he was doing another picture. Stephen Eckleberry was an old friend. He was Karen Black's husband, who used to be Paul's girlfriend. So it was a one family thing again. And uh, that's where Eckleberry came in on the picture and, and took over as editor with some other idiot that we had originally. But so uh, that's how... So Rod Ellis was not only a, not a contributor, he was a fuck up. So, you know, <laughs> well, he he gave he gave a great performance as sort of a schnook in the film. Yes. How many people are on the production team? Key people are four of us. There's Paul, there's Susan, there's myself. 
And it does look like there's another person who was in every department, uh, William Grillo or Grillo. Oh, William Grillo is my brother-in-law. Oh, well, and yeah, he obviously did a lot. He did a lot of work on this. He was a, he's a costume well, designer, you, makeup artist, art department. Let me tell you something. Special he effects. Just, he was the model for Duggo. He wound up being the assassin at the end that shot. Uh, oh, that's your that's your he's the one in the, the, the OK. Yeah. That's William Grillo. And I'll tell you, you asked if any scene came out of anything improvisationally that came out from uh, him was like, he just came out of the Marines. He was 12 years in the Marines. And I said to Paul, Paul, can we hire my brother-in-law? He needs a job. And I've known him. I knew him 10 years before I married his, uh, his sister, you know, so uh i knew them a long time ago uh back in the old drug days in uh in hollywood uh, when they started again and that kind of thing and then we all split up and i went into uh i went to new york to make nuncio uh he came and visited me he had moved back to new york that's where his family was from too and uh although they all moved out here well, that's another long story but he came by and visited me once at Universal in uh, New York uh, in the studio up there. And I was, it was a nice hugging meeting and all that. And that was the last I saw of him. And it was only later because I wound up born with a sister who I had known when she was a kid. She was 10 years younger. And uh, I married her. And uh, that's how we all became, you know, uh, back together again. It was a very close family because we were all good friends. I was good friends with uh, his other uh, older sister. That was more my my friend my age, you know. So it was a long thing like that. And so when Billy came out of the Marines, you got to understand something when I'm telling you this. And Billy Grillo is the most, was, he's dead. He was the most unique person I ever met in terms of he could do anything. And I'm telling you, he never learned to play a musical instrument officially. Or he, you tell him, play, he's, pick a song, any song. Uh, tell me what I say, Ray Charles. Plays it on the piano. He imitated John Lennon so well, you would think it's John Lennon. That's just music. He's never learned to, or reared, uh, learned to read or write music. So, okay, what does music have to do with this? It's not just that. He had an ability to be able to do, build and do anything like no other human being I've ever met on the planet. He could build a house by himself. He just did it. Nobody taught him anything. He could just do anything like that. So I said to my brother, uh, I said to Paul, can I hire my brother-in-law? He says, uh, well, look, we really need a crew here of people. And can he really contribute this and that? And I said, not only that, <laughs> with him, you won't need the crew. He'll take the work of five guys. Okay, all right, okay, all right, he can get a job. Within two weeks, Everybody from every department, whatever they were doing, the first word that came out of their mouth when they had a problem was Billy, Billy, Billy. He built sets for us in Mirage. 
those whole things of the you know the the set that was supposed to be uh oh not only could he build a set you want to talk about that there was another movie called uh that they did afterward uh i wasn't involved in that one uh um men i think it was yeah and they needed billy who was sean young they needed Billy as, uh, you know, he was a prop guy and everything. They couldn't fit a camera into these bathrooms. So they got a warehouse. They says, could you build us a bathroom? And he said, yeah. They said, how much would it cost? Not only did they know how much. He would look at the damn thing and tell you what the price of the material would be at Home Depot. And this is not what he did. He was a real sniper. He was really, anything he did was perfection. And he built, he says, ah, about 500. He built the bathroom that they're throwing up into the toilet. That's not a real bathroom. And then nobody would ever know this. You see a real bathroom down to detail. And he builds it all by himself and fast. He built the, in Mirage, uh, where they're going, uh, Paul is explaining the mountains and it's a close-up, real close, and really then you find out it's a model. He built that all himself. It was There was nothing he could do. He could do makeup. He did makeup of people with their heads blown off. Like we did in Mirage, it was a shame because they said, no, you'll get an X if you do that. He made things that were the most incredible things. Usurped every department. There was one in November, man, where the guy's head gets blown off. You remember that? Oh, yeah. Well, we had these stupid special effects guys telling us, no, if you do that, you're going to get an X rating. You know, there was so much we had to learn. Don't listen to other people. They don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Well, they come in there, these guys with pyro licenses, and they blew it up afterward. And it looked exactly like you cut to a fucking numero uno pizza. It looked so fake. So we had to do it again. And we had the pyro people come down. They get these low lives and give the pyro license to. And Billy, who knew how to do everything, uh, said, no, we had, uh, don't do it that way. I just looked at these guys. I says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to listen to everything he tells you to do. You're going to sit there and we're paying you for your license. You got it? Okay, good. Quiet, sit in the corner. And Billy took the head of Stacy Keach. That was a leftover head from somebody. They made a model of Stacy Keach. <laughs> and he took it and he says it needs a pineapple carving like he did with a grenade. And he carved it like a pineapple in the inside and he placed charges right where they had to be. And they were air charges because we couldn't use the, the pyro or something for this. I forgot what the hell it was. All I know is Billy took charge of everything. He blew up that head because they were going to blow it the other way. Billy says, if you do that, you're going to get the same effect that you got on the other one. That's when I stopped those guys and I told them, you know what, you guys, you're getting paid for this. Sit down and be quiet. He's in charge of it. And that's it. You have any problems? No. Okay, good. Sit down. And Billy made that explosion come out the way it did perfectly and explode just the way we wanted it to. There wasn't anything Billy couldn't do. He created that spool thing. Remember the spooler? The thing that was supposed to send this with wire guided so that the radar couldn't jam that. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. 
that was something I made up and Billy just built. Like a like the drone. It was no yeah, it was but it was like having your own engineer because this had to be wire guided so that it couldn't be jammed by any radar. And wow. that was that was the whole thing, because they do have things that protect the president that way. And I was you know, this is all my knowledge. So I knew that, uh, you know, the stuff they had protecting the, the president. And how would we circumvent that? Because I like to go down to detail. So that's why Billy Grillo's name. Is all is over the. Is... Because he, he, he really did everything. So I, I have to I have to ask you about one other person. So the yeah. woman who played your wife. Coralisa. Uh, yes. She yes. gives a phenomenal performance in this in the film. How did she come to it? She came in and read. She was an actress. And she just she, killed it in the audition. She, she spoke English like me and you. And then she made that accent. That's what we wanted. Because Billy's wife, with, that he uh, brought back from the Marines, was spoke like her, you know, in the movie. But she couldn't do it. We tried to make her. <laughs> she couldn't act. So, but the other one, no, she wound up being a stripper and something later. I never heard any more from her. But she was great in the movie. I know. She's phenomenal in, in those. Like, yeah, she's really and and she's doing no. a voice. So yes. And, well, this so that okay. We'll hop back to Billy because it really now it's starting to come into focus that he was not just the he's not just the last shot and sort of the mvp of the production but he's in some way the the muse of this yes in many ways that ghillie suit that he put on me nobody knew about those things in those days you know what the ghillie suit is yeah the where you yeah. you you fade into the shrub yeah. shrubbery right he built the ghillie suit and put it on me I mean, there was nothing this guy could do. Nothing. Wow. And he was the most amazing guy. There was a some show that uh, he happened to be on the set for, for Robert Davi. And there was a sniper. This happened in real life. They took from real life these two snipers that were against each other. And one finally got the other one. I forgot which teams they were on. It wasn't Russia and Germany, although that was one, too. That was another famous uh, incident of World War II. There was another one. And the sniper caught, these were two guys, master snipers, oppositions. And he caught the reflection of one of the, uh, the lenses from sunlight. So he just shot that, and that bullet went right through the scope and into the other sniper's eye. Well, they were trying to emulate something like that in this, and they had this uh, girl who was, uh, you know, she was going to be a sniper expert. I don't know where she got a sniper in her ass from her elbow. She, um, she was in charge, and the way she was going to use a piece of glass to do this, she says, if you do it that way, you're going to blind that actor in the least. You'll blind him. And so really, why? What? And then he told her how to set up the shot. And it was safe for the actor. If he weren't there that day, there would be one blind actor. Ugh. 
And, you know, and then she goes, hey, I'd like your phone number, you know, so I could, uh, uh, you know, maybe call you and pick your brain. And yeah, sure, I'll I'll give you all the advice and you get paid. So that was the end of that. But, you know, he just didn't get the opportunities. If, they had, if he had been exposed to what he was, the people knowing what he could do, this guy, well, he would have also been a threat to everything in every department. Yeah, he sounds like a real sort of Chili Palmer type. Let's talk about improvisations. I'm going to tell you the greatest improvisation that happened on this, and it actually almost happened on film. You remember when uh, Billy sits down, Billy Grillo sits down, and now I'm playing, you know, the actor, James Andronica. Right. You know, this is when I woke up like that, you know, I made myself like actor and with a nice diction and everything. And I walked up and I said, um, hey, that was a great job, man. Thanks for all your advice, you know, and everything, whatever I said to him. Mm -hmm. And he goes, yeah, but it's just a movie. That's what we were using for the poster. Uh, The poster, in fact, I still have one here that we made our own. And it said, uh, it's just a movie, or is it? You know, dot, 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 or is it? And uh, that's what the November Men was, and it was a target um, over the presidential seal. And uh, since I had said that all the time, Billy just threw in that line. He just said it, you know, when we were all through, and I says, thanks for helping me, Grillo. It was a wonderful job. And I walk away, and then he went, yeah, but it's just a movie. He wasn't doing that on camera because Billy would only follow lines that he was given, you know, to do. He said that on his own. <laughs> we were, The camera was already shut, cut. Okay, good, thanks. And he went, yeah, but it's just a movie. And me and Paul turned and looked at each other exactly at the same moment. We had the exact same thought without one word of dialogue, and we went, get that camera back there again. Billy, say that again. We knew what we were going to do. We were going to extend this thing. So now that's how the movie was going to end because Billy was going to get a chance at the end. He's a guy that really wants to kill the president. We instantly knew that that's what we... We actually changed the end of the movie. I can't remember what the original end was. But it had it didn't have the impact that that did. Um, and so as soon as he said that, he let us realize what the end of this movie would be. And right from that moment, we knew we would to get recorded what he just said. And now we could extend it to somebody who was disgruntled with this whole thing that it's just a movie and he wants to do it for real. I was going to use his picture from the end as one of the big featured images in the promotion for on the podcast. And I was sort of like, well, that's kind of obscure. Like it's only, he's only really, you have to be really in the movie to think that that's a great shot. But now that is, makes all the sense in the world that he is kind, he's like the rosebud in this movie. It's so wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's, yeah, I know it's true. It is, but it, that's right. Now they don't realize how important the rosebud is. Yeah, and he really is. Uh, 
he was, I said it at his uh, funeral, and uh, I said, one biography I should have written that I am delinquent in uh, that will always bother me uh, will be the most amazing human being I have ever met. And uh, Billy, a good thing I didn't say in front of him, he would choke up and, you know, be embarrassed. And he'd be embarrassed to cry over an emotion like that or something. But to know how much I really just, uh, I mean, we, he knew how much, you know, we really were in awe of what he could do. I, I can't finish telling you stories. They won't even sound real. Um, and uh, my God, in the end, he was uh, over 300 pounds. And when he sat on the bed that he came up here, we gave him our bed to sleep on. And his tremendous weight just collapsed the fucking bed. So he's sitting in the middle of this fucking bed. It's what the fuck did you do to the bed? Why am I going to get this fixed? He's giving me a pencil and paper. I gave him a pencil and paper. He draws the pieces, go into Osh, you know, which is like a Home Depot, go in there, because it was right down the block. Pick up this bracket and this bracket, it looks like this, and tell him that's the size, give him the size you want, he measured it. He couldn't move, don't forget, he's a 300 pound guy, you get him up off the floor was gonna be a big deal. Sitting in that position, get me this tool and that tool, he reconstructed the strength of the bed uh, and that whole section where it broke 10 times stronger than the manufacturer did. So he just got up and we got him up and he got on the bed. And of course that, that bed would withstand a small nuclear device. I mean, he just, while he was sick and couldn't move, he was able to fix this bed the way other people do. And if you look at it, the work is perfect. You just understand what perfection is into it. No, he's just an amazing human being. And he was able to fix things that you can't even begin to imagine, you know. Uh, Got it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's just an emotional time for me to just remember. But anyway... Um, Again, filling out the cast. Now you, your family's involved. You have your kid involved in the in the production, and your brother in law is involved in the production, and Paul and his partner are involved in the production, and Rod is just creeping around the outskirts, being creepy, yes. which is which is great for his role. It's all very. Yes. It's, it still seems all very true to character. So then we get yeah. some of these other actors. What people didn't know is we weren't SAG at the time. And we never became SAG. And it was before, when I say at the time, it was before SAG allowed low-budget you know, yeah, allowances. It was definitely a line you didn't cross in 92. And, right. You certainly could have gotten in trouble then. But the point was, you know, I think it had to be films like the November Men, which I'm sure they had to become aware of, um, that probably prompted, rightfully so, that niche inside SAG so that actors could make films, you know, under different conditions, paying them a different scale, et cetera, and all that. I mean, we paid, I think at that time it was like 400 or 450 a day, something like that. Maybe as much as five, I'm not sure, maybe 450. We paid 300, you know, to everybody. 
Uh, that was all we could afford, and we told them that. And they were fine with it. They wanted to be in a good f- film, and uh, that was it. But, um, you know, because there were SAG actors in that picture, no doubt. I mean, we had quite a few. And You were clearly SAG, and Leslie Bevis and Bo Starr are probably both, like, you're all risking your union members yes. to be in this film. Again, Absolutely. danger. This film is wrapped in danger for everyone right. involved. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> It, so, it certainly was, yes. So, uh, you know, we had other, another Secret Service agent was a real cop, another cop. Uh, and then the head of the Secret Service was a captain in the police. But these weren't, they didn't have to worry about their careers in terms of, uh, but, um, you know, we had uh, all these guys. Uh, we had, you know, ex, what should we call them? You get in there, you'll be the, this agent coming in and, uh, you know, uh, racing in to arrest the uh, uh, what the hell was his name, uh, Libby or Sibby or something Sibby. like that. Yeah, yeah. and uh, he uh, the, the, one of them was the guy who wrote the score, and the other one was a real cop. They and, put on wait, and suits. But back up here, where so on IMDb, Sibby is just listed as Dominic, just Dominic, never acted yeah, in anything they, else. But yes. he's a really compelling actor. He has a lot to do in this. Do you know anything about him? What's his background? Where does he come no. from? Where does he go? Nope. No, uh, just comes in, he, is awesome, and leaves. He came in, an assistant director, who was my manager's son. I gave a, a job to like that. My manager, Herb Nanis, uh, gave his son a job. And it was his friend. And he brought him in. And... Uh, he was, uh, you know, he talked about what a great actor he was. And he actually was good. He just bragged about himself all day. But he was good. And uh, he, he did everything we asked him to do and did it with a smile. And then he was gone. And he had all these other things he was supposed to be lined up for. I never saw him again or before. So I, I there's nothing else I can say about him. I wish some other things had happened for him so I could say, yeah, he was in the November men first. But um, he had not. Uh, I don't know what happened to him. Coralisa became, uh, you know, she didn't stay in the business, nor did any of the others. Um, it's it's uh, almost as if participating in the November Men had a deleterious effect on their careers. Someone who yes. had a conspiratorial or a paranoid mind might, based upon all the sort of legalese at the beginning. And that's just that feeling of danger. And we had a different ending than the one you saw. You know, we had to change it. Oh, we had. (laughs) Well, well, please. What was the what? Here's the ending. Uh, You saw uh, a guy up on a roof. Yeah. About to shoot him. And and then you hear beep, 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 you know, because he's about to shoot uh, the Uh president and it stays on him. We had, because we didn't know who was going to win the election. We had to cover both presidents so that if it was uh, this, we still had the same premise that the right wing guy goes and shoots the left and winds up being that again. If that happened, uh, that Clinton won, we would need Clinton. So rather than take that one that was that you saw in the end, 
we actually went and got footage of Clinton and we came in close enough that we were able go, to go over the signs. It was just a campaign run. We were able to shoot over the signs, zoom in. We had to do opticals, which are very expensive and all that in those days, you know, and you're working on a budget too. And to take out all those campaign signs and make it look like he was president. And we were gonna put that Zoom thing on him that read uh, the uh, telescopic sight. And it would have been right on Clinton would have, for an ending like that. So it turned out to be the same political ending. The right-wing guy still winds up getting his way and he's gonna shoot the new, uh, the new left again, uh, the new left president. If we'll call him that. Exactly. Yes, we'll call him that. <laughs> yeah. so, that's what we felt in 1992. That's, oh my God, you you understand it all. Anyway, so he, he just, uh, I want you to know, if I didn't feel this from you, I wouldn't have been able to be forthcoming at all, you know? I, I, I just, uh, so anyway. But it was true that that's what we felt at the time, and now he was going to kill the left. Okay. But it would have been far more effective, and everybody got scared shit, you know, including uh, Dershowitz, who also said, if anybody tries to stop this, I will be in there first online. That I will personally represent this thing. That, About you know, the November men? Yes. If uh, that if they try to, you know, stop this because of uh, this political uh, expression we're making. Uh and that's when he used to still be Dershowitz. But anyway, so what happens is instead we get, uh, we can't use it uh, at all. We're, uh, they're afraid to release it. And uh, so we put, it still had the same ending, but the shot that would have been incredible was coming right in on Clinton and choosing that actually before he won the fucking election. So now the film is the film's done. You've done it all. You've got your team together. You've you've achieved this thing, and you're now you're trying to sell it. Are you already with Troma? Are you like you can't really self distribute at this point? No, but we were turned down from. I'll tell you this story with Robert Redford. Uh, we called and asked Redford's office for help to get this film in because uh, uh, Sundance was getting to be quite a place then. And uh, it was just starting to become the name place to get your film into. And we, uh, so we called Redford's office. The reason we called Redford's office is that years before uh, Redford was doing a film called Ordinary People. And he wanted David Proval to play the Judd Hirsch role as a psychiatrist. Um, the producer of the film, who obviously had a lot of clout, even though Redford was directing, uh, because I guess Redford had not made his bones yet as a director and to say whether or not, Hey, this guy, don't worry. His films make money as a director. You know, he didn't have as much juice. The juice was him being in the film. So that's what the producer wanted. And Redford would not act in the film. 
And he says, no, I don't like this Provel guy. First of all, he's too heavy. He looks like a bull. And David was, had put on weight at the time. And uh, I don't know why a psychiatrist can't put on weight. But anyway, he didn't, he didn't want Provel in there. He, he felt more comfortable with Judd Hirsch. Uh, but to entice David when he came in, I don't know why Redford would have to entice David, but he did. He wanted to, I guess maybe the insecurities of, you know, first time directing, what do I know? But he had a big sign over him that said, King Kong died for your sins. Now he had to have somebody make that from an art department. And that was the line that Nunzio was painting in the movie Nunzio. He was painting on a wall. Uh, no, he was not painting it. Someone else had painted it on there, and he was painting it out because he felt it was a, a you know, a slight against the, his religion. So uh, he painted out those words: "King Kong died for your sins," and Redford put that up over his head when David walked in for the interview with him, and. Uh, he couldn't, he wouldn't look at me for any of the roles. My girlfriend was a, a assistant agent at William Morris at the time. Uh, I think I got her the job there and she tried to get me in to, uh, for the role and Redford of course was not interested at all. And uh, so he didn't. And, uh, but I felt he'd remember the name and the movie that I wrote and that he had words painted from over his head when David Proval came in. So we called up and we told him that story at the office. We said, this is, uh, he's, uh, Paul Williams said, this is James Andronicus. Uh, he's the author of this script, uh, this movie. And uh, he'd like very much if you'd allow us a chance to put it into Sundance. And uh, she's okay, I'll be happy to tell him. When we called back, when we had not heard from him in a certain given time, Paul called and the secretary was very cold. And she said to him, uh, Mr. Redford doesn't uh, know James Andronica or he's never heard of Nunzio. And I thought, what a prick, this little shrimp telling me this, you know? And uh, I was just so mad at him anyway, to, to say that. And uh, so, not that I'm so tall, but he just became more of a shrimp to me. And uh, <laughs> I'm actually like two inches taller than him. Now I'm probably shorter than him. Uh, anyway, so anyway, uh, I wrote that, uh, uh, you know, uh, so we weren't in Sundance and we were disappointed. Len Clady, let's dig him up out of the past, who was a big Paul Williams fan for all his political movies and uh, interest. He calls up and he said, he finds out and he says, leave it to me. And he called somebody. And the next thing we know, we're back in Sun. We are in Sundance. Now comes, we got the film, right? Now comes an itchy brother-in-law who would also put money into this uh, project and was begging for his money. He had also, I don't know if he lost money in the movie Excalibur or something like that, but he wanted money. Uh, he was in the film business. It was not his primary business. And he wanted to know, when are we selling it? When are we selling it? Paul was saying, we might lose it all, uh, Bob. And that was the story, you know. Uh, so just leave me alone. You know, we'll sell it as we sell it. Don't put the pressure. But he was putting pressure. We signed 
a contract with Troma with this agent. An agent got it for us, a guy who was not successful in his time. And he was an older guy. And he says, well, at least I outlived everybody. That gave me worries right there that we were doing the wrong thing. The only thing you accomplish is outliving your competitors. So anyway, we wind up with trauma. But in order for him not to have any competition, he didn't want that in Sundance. And he quietly took it out of Sundance. I have no question whatsoever in my mind had that film remained in Sundance. And Paul knows this too. We would have gotten all kinds of offers. And I'm basing this on the fact that when it went to Chicago Film Festival, uh, it filled the audience room of questions and answers two nights in a row that it aired. The second night bleeding out into the hallway that security had to come and close it down. And people just love the uh, the show that they were uh, putting on, really talking about the Secret Service and the whole thing. They just, they filled those rooms when the other rooms were not filmed. They were sent there. People was, uh, one of the persons who was sent there was uh, uh, Egbert, uh, is that his name? Yeah. E Ebert? Uh, was Roger uh, Ebert. Ebert. Yeah, uh, Roger, uh, yeah, it's not, Siskel's the skinny guy, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay, so the other guy, and he used to work for Paul years ago as a writer. Uh, on what? Well, how did they work? I, I want to know uh, more about this. Paul was, when Paul was a producer, I don't know, at some point, an independent producer, and he was trying to, you know, uh, Egbert was trying to become a, uh, a writer, and he wrote some pirate movies of, uh, it was all female lesbian pirate movie. And uh, Paul was, uh, you know, I don't know, it, it never happened to say the least, but uh, I don't think he remembered Paul with favor because Paul called him and asked him to please help us get it into Sundance and please give it a good review. And he didn't either. He didn't give it a good review. He didn't give it any review. And instead he sent his agents over there to see what the response was at the Chicago festival. He could have shown up himself. He didn't. He sent people over there to find out their response, which was so favorable. He could have, there was no risk for him to get up and say, Hey, I think this is a great movie. So did everybody who saw it. The problem was there wasn't everybody who saw it. And, uh, so when he didn't, uh, do that for him, um, that's why I say if this were exposed to, it was exposed to the Chicago Film Festival, <clears throat> excuse me, where it did very well, I know it would have done the same stunning thing that it did there at uh, uh, Sundance. And it didn't because Redford didn't let it in. Then we got it in and this new guy takes it out and instead sells it to, He's the agent for trauma, and he gets it for a good deal with trauma. And uh, that was it. Uh, as a result, you know, trauma did nothing with it. So, uh, wait, so when they bought it from you, Paul got his money back? Yeah, just, a, just about, yeah. yeah. And... But then it's on now it's a trauma film. It's gone to it's done. Is that the only is the Chicago Film Festival, the only film festival you did? Uh, correct. To the best of my recollection. Yes. Uh, 
we've left one big piece of this story out i realized and it's one of the things that's the the that the film plays with so mm -hmm. the film is leads us to believe that it was presented by robert davi who is not oh. listed in the credits but he is listed as presented by robert davi and right. so he plays the producer of the film within a film but he plays it as himself so did he produce this film robert davi had nothing to do with it in that sense rob davi is a friend of mine uh, that i met when we were on uh, gangster chronicles he came over to me a big admirer of nunzio and uh, we started a friendship from there we subsequently worked together a few times we wrote one, I wrote one for him with a, a merger of two stories that we had. That's and the we Dukes? Made, we, that's called the Dukes. It was called the Dukes of Melrose and written 18 years before it was produced. Um, but it was before there was a Melrose place. So later we just dropped it to the Dukes. But no, I came in and asked him a favor because we had the film walls put together and now our foreign agent trying to collect foreign money as it did in those days, not at AFM, but uh, I forgot where it was. And you, you go and you, you uh, sell in Europe first and all that stuff. And then we'll get a theatrical year and then we'll get uh, more money for it. Whatever those formulas were at the time, we found out that they said, we need a name in the movie, some kind of name. I said, well, will Robert Davi help? He says, I don't know to tell you the truth, but he's a shot. So I went over and I wrote uh, two scenes and stuffed them into the movie. <laughs> and and we uh, made them work and shot so that uh, Robert shot these uh, two scenes for us. Uh, I made him a producer that we pretended we went over for money for, as uh, Arthur Gwendolyn was trying to do. And um, part of the deal was, can you put my son Lion on there? Yeah, put your Sunline on there. I don't care. So that's that's how Sunline Productions got on there. <laughs> that's and, awesome. Um, yeah, and uh, so that was uh, as a presentation by them. I think we even had something with Ed Pressman, which we had to settle something with him. Was it within that? Yeah, I think it was in that one. Or was that Nunzio? The Nunzio, we had to give Ed Pressman something and twenty five grand because they had made some deal with us and when Jennings took over they were pushed out and so Paul gave him 25000 to shut him up but it still said in Ed Pressman presentation on Nunzio so this you know Hollywood is just so full of shit you know I mean <laughs> you go on to make at least one more film with Paul Williams it's Mirage and it's and we talked about it on this podcast and so I wanted to get into that a little bit. And one question I have is I noticed that Chuck Plotkin, uh, Bruce Springsteen's producer, is listed as a producer on Mirage. And right. he has no other film production credits. What's Correct. his involvement in Mirage? He was Paul's friend and he put uh, money in. And uh, really, he was supposed to. Well, there were a couple of things. Number one, at the end of November Men, we were supposed to have, um, oh my God, a great singer, and I'm a big fan of him, 
um, Bob. Bob Dylan? Bob Dylan, thank you very much. If I'd have known that he was sparring, and I was at the time, I would have gone down there and sparred with him because, you know, I, I would have made him look foolish. And But that's exactly how I would have won him over. And I would have said, I'll tell you what, when I had him in a clinch, could you give me the rights to your song for the end of the movie? Which Dylan song? We're living in a political world. Oh, it would have been so good. You're not kidding, especially the way it began right at the end oh, of the credit. The one who was supposed to deliver that was Chuck Do Nothing Plotkin. <laughs> and Chuck, uh, he was supposed to get money out of Mirage. I don't think he put money into it. He was supposed to get a fee, which Paul held back. And he was his friend and friends with his girlfriend, too. We also happened to, that happened to be his former girlfriend, too. Paul was always with these former girlfriends and had them and became friends with the boyfriends. But that's a sign of character. I... Yeah. It's, but he said, look, you know, uh, you didn't deliver what you were supposed to deliver all because he was afraid. I think that Bob Dylan would have loved this movie. I don't think uh, even if he didn't love it, is it something to show him to say, listen, could you give us the rights to your song at the end here? I'm sure he would have said yes. But even if he said no, would it have been offensive uh, to ask him? That was his buddy. And he was afraid to ask him. I'm so angry when I think about it. And, uh, you know, just as I'm, I'm sure. That, and so instead, we had to put this, you know, generic music that uh, the song uh, score guy did. But imagine that we're living in a political world, you know, boom, at the end of that thing. Oh, it yeah. would have done everything, you know? Yeah. And he never delivered. So his name to me is like poison. And he didn't get his money. Paul says, I'm holding all that back from you. Because that was all going on at the same time we were, I think, I don't remember that we were shooting Mirage already. And I guess his name is on which one? It's on, is it on both of them? No, it's on Mirage. It's on Mirage. Yeah, so we were supposed to make him a producer and credit and money and all that. I guess he got the the credit thing, but he didn't get the money he was supposed to get. He got, might have gotten some, but he didn't get a... a because a, a Mirage made some money, so he didn't profit in any of that because he didn't deliver what he was supposed to deliver uh, before, and Paul got even with him. Really, that's really what it amounted you to. You know, it's he, my feeling about Mirage is as long as you and Saeed Bedrea got paid as a, you know, that's all that matters to me. Everyone else in that's doing just fine. You know, Saeed? Yeah. Cause he came over from, from uh, November men and then shows up in Mirage. And then he's actually gone on to a pretty yes. impressive career in yes. quite a few like major, like huge films. Uh, I know. And uh, he's a, he was a very nice guy too. He's a sign painter. He, he created signs, all kinds of uh, luminescent signs and all that stuff. But anyway, that was his actually his van in November, man. <laughs> so, all hands on deck. Good. You know, right on. Right on. Well, who knew that you were launching? I guess it was non-union, so it would have to be one of his earliest films. Oh, right? absolutely. Yeah. Strange trivia with him. He was also 
friends with uh, roommates with Woody Harrelson at the time too, when Woody wasn't known either. But um, anyway, <laughs> it was just a small piece of trivia. But he he came in and just read, and he was great. The other guy brought him in, and uh, that was it. That's how we got we got most people the the old fashioned way, just casting them by coming in and in Ron Ellis's office, which looked impressive, and uh, that was it. You know, Paul left me pretty much to do what I wanted. That's great. Uh, so he really was working in a lot of ways as the producer star, and you were working as the writer-director, but because yes. he's the director, I just, yes. it doesn't matter. These titles don't really matter, but, but when you think of the way you, you're talking about it, it sounds like... He, one of Paul's great skills is, is as a producer, which is really a huge part of directing, is good producing, right? So. Yeah. Well, there's no no question. I mean, Paul is really one of the greatest directors to work for as a writer, um, as a, you know, he just really, and again, has no greed with those titles and all that stuff. It's a crazy thing that we won't remember again. It just came into my head, so let me tell it to yeah. you. Yeah. When I write the character for Arthur Gwendolyn in The November Men, the director, um, I wrote it down, and I have the line there where the uh, FBI, uh, Secret Service, uh, Bo Starr specifically is saying, Bo is saying, you know, Arthur Gwendolyn, da 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 born, da-da-da-da-da, gives his date of birth and um, his uh, year and et cetera and all that. And he says, da-da-da-da-da. you wind up, they pull back, he's, he's talking to Arthur's girlfriend, right? Mm -hmm. Who's a wonderful actress, too, Leslie. Uh, anyway, um, she was the one in that blade. I don't want to digress. She, she was in the, uh, one of those aliens and uh, she was the slithering kind of snake or something like that and in this little private gym where we were all working out and all this my wife became friends with her and uh, it's funny she didn't have any more of a career she was in space balls or something like that but um, she wound up uh, my wife was the one that cast her for this she's oh she's per I said, oh my god you're right and anyway I got her um, and so, yeah, you look up and you find out that's who he's talking about. And Paul just says to me, so, yeah, you, so you grab my license someplace. Like I would write and I would turn in the stuff to him. Right. And he goes, yeah. So you grab the, my license someplace. You use my real one. I says, what? He says, yeah, that's my birthday down to the year. I picked his birthday. Now, the year we can understand, you know, I figured, uh, what, he was two years older than me, something like that's it. So that's not hard. I just picked the year. We have an excuse for that. But I have the odds of one in 365 that I picked his exact birthday. Sorry for the abrupt cut there, but it was a long interview and a really great opportunity to get to know this artist, and I'd like to personally thank James Andronica for giving himself to this interview so fully and for bringing us this film that I love so much. <laughs>